0: Have you ever been surprised by something that you should have seen coming? In this episode, my guest Bruce Humes and I actually did that to each other. I surprised him by launching into an anecdote that began with a cat and ended with animistic, mournful song lyrics that I was quoting at him for a guy. Uh, he surprised me by suggesting that the main characters of this episode's novel, Last Quarter of the Moon, are actually better socialists than the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, themselves. Bruce kind of have a point. These main characters, who are a tribe of reindeer herders called the Evenki, they certainly don't amass capital, put it like that. What they do do is share, uh, they give and take according to ability and need, and they have a sort of a gift and favour economy rather than a currency economy or a commodity economy, I suppose. And that brings me to my own point. I was actually thinking about this in the shower more than once, on more than one day. Um, I was thinking how some podcasters in uh, their kind of plugs about their Patreons or whatever will say something like, This show is made possible by your generous donations. And that might be true for some podcasts that are taking in huge amounts of money or the podcaster needs the moral support or something. But I think it's not something I can say because it's just not true. The show is my gift to you. I measure its success by the happiness it creates. If I get nothing in return from it, I will not stop producing it. I don't use this show to pay my rent. It's something that I fit alongside my job and the freelance work I do. Um, it's the job and the freelance work that pay the rent, not the podcast. Yeah, so that's, that's the economic uh, foundation of the podcast If we're being good Marxists, that's what we should focus on and understand. So the reason I'm talking about all this is that if you get happiness or something similar from this show, and you'd like to give a gift in return, or return the favour, just like the Evenki might, uh, here's four ways you can do so, and these are not quite so Evenki-friendly. There's Patreon, that's number one. So you can give a monthly contribution that starts at one US dollar, and that will give you access for as long as you're a supporter to all the bonus shows and there's there's 30 plus of those now, so hours and hours of bonus content and I'm still producing them. There's more going up regularly, I've got several more queued just for the coming months. So that's your first option. Uh, second option, I've just this is a new one, I've just launched it. Uh, I've called it Trichific Deluxe um, and it's basically a different way to access all the bonus shows you get access by making a one-off uh, payment of 10 US dollars, but that never expires and you get access to all the bonus shows, which like I said, I'm still making. There's more and more of them. So that's probably makes more economic sense in the longer term, if that's how you like to think. Um, speaking of which, if, you, if you'd rather just give a one-off contribution, there's Buy Me A Coffee and PayPal. Uh, th- those don't get you anything in return. Those just get you my thanks. Um If it's buy me a coffee, I'll be able to leave a little comment and thank you uh, personally. So yeah, those are the four places where you can support the show. And there is one place where I've sort of gathered all the links for them. I've made a support page on the Treasure homepage. So Two quick ways to get to that. You can look in the show notes and click the support link, or you can go to the Trichific homepage, which is com. Click the wee thing at the top right that says help support Trichific." It's got a little um, hammer and, well, <laughs> two kinds of hammer crossed over uh, in good leftist fashion. And click on that and all the support links are there. And yeah, that's, uh, that's all you need to know, I think. Yeah, so let's get on with the news, the terrific news. We've got three things, as per usual. Now, the first one, this is an event. It's another online event that I'm trying to spread the word about. So some of you might remember that we covered a book called The Book of Shanghai on the podcast earlier. So it was um, published by Comma Press down in uh, Manchester. Uh, UK, and also involved for the Manchester Confucius Institute. And we had um, the editor of the book and one of their top people, Karen Wang, talking to me about the book on that episode. Well, the Manchester Confucius Institute is launching or is going to be hosting an online event. And that's happening on the 18th of November at 2pm British Standard Time. Um, So not your local time if you're not in the UK. Although you might be in Ireland, then it would be the same time. But (laughs) yeah, I'll I'll quickly read the about for this event. What is it like to be a writer in 21st century China, writing about Shanghai, a futuristic metropolis, and one of the world's biggest cities? Join us for a literary exploration of the city of Shanghai as part of a very special event, showcasing Comma's, they should say Comma Press, showcasing Comma's city anthology, The Book of Shanghai, which features 10 contemporary Chinese authors. We will be joined by two contributing authors, Chen Danyang and Wang Janhai, who will be in conversation with Comma Press CEO and publisher Ra Page about what it's like to be a young female writer in China today. Um, I'll give a disclaimer here. Chen, Ms. Chen and Ms. Wang are the young female writers in China. Ra Page is a man in England, Um, although he is living today. He is part of the present. Uh, Yeah, so that event... Is like I said, happening on the 18th. There'll be a link to it in the show notes. It's free. I don't know if if Eventbrite are setting a limit to the number of attendees. I would assume not. But there you go. So yeah, check that one out. Our second news item. Um, I think I've consistently had at least one Chinese sci-fi news item in the Church of Fake News for for almost forever. It, yeah, I, I I keep. I guess it's a good thing because uh, more and more news about Chinese sci-fi and translation keeps coming out. So, there's always something to talk about. So, uh, Tor, who are the um, the North American publishers of most of the Chinese sci-fi available in print, have announced a new book. It's called The Way Spring Arrives and Other Stories, a new collection of Chinese SFF in translation. Um, it's edited by Yu Chen, who I haven't heard of before, and Regina Kanyu Regina Canu- Wang, who's um, one of the authors featured in Ken Liu's two anthologies, and is she's quite involved in uh, Chinese the Chinese sci-fi sort of scene uh, over in Shanghai, I think, is where she um, is based, or at least where she kind of got her start, so to speak. So this is an interesting one. It's got a lot of authors involved, and a lot of translators and there's also four essayists. So there's a lot of different people involved here. Um, yeah. I'm not going to read the whole, uh, tour page. I will, I will read the list of authors and translators, though, because it's a bit of a who's who. Anna Wu. These are the authors. Anna Wu, Chen Qian, Chihui, Chu Hui, Xi, Chu Xidao, Count Yi. I guess that's an online name. Gu Ling Chen, Nian Yu, Shen Da Cheng, Shen Ying Ying, Wang Nuo Nuo, Willow L, Xia Jia, Xioshin knew Zhao Hai Okay. And your translators. We've had some we've got some former show guests here actually. Uh Kara Healy, Carmen Yiling Yan, Elizabeth Hanlon, Emily Shweni Jin. That's Emily Jin from the episode we did on Gu Jian. You might remember her. It Velair, um Itvo from the episode we did on Necropolis Immortal. Gigi Chang, uh she was on the show too. She was uh talking about our episode well talking about Legend of the Condor Heroes, uh the episode we did for that. Judith Huang Judy E. Zhou, Rebecca F. Kuang, if you've heard of, if you if that name rings a bell, she's the author of the, oh gosh, what are they called? The Poppy War and that series of books. Uh, Ru Ping Chen and Yilin Wang. You might remember Yilin Wang was on the episode we did on the woman in the carriage, the Chuan Chi. So yeah, quite a, oh yeah, and the essayist too. So I mean, so Emily Jin is also an essayist, Jing Tzu, Rebecca F. Kuang again, and Shueting Christine Ni, who's a name that pops up a lot on Chinese literature Twitter and she's she's cool so huge number of interesting names i believe it's all women yeah pretty sure it's all women let me let me read the the blurb see if it says anything about that Tor.com publishing is thrilled to announce that Lindsay Hall and Ruoshi Chen have acquired world English English rights to *The Way Spring Arrives* and other stories, a new anthology of Chinese fiction and fantasy written, edited, and translated by women and non-binary creators. There you go, from Regina Canyuan, Zhang Yiwen, and Emily Shuanijin at Storycom. Yeah, interesting. So I'll put a link to this uh, news in the show notes. It'll all be there. Um, my thoughts. So the fact it's all women, that is, and and non-binary people, that is, of course, interesting. The thing that's jumping out at me is that uh, it's SFF, not SF. So it's Chinese science fiction and fantasy. The, yeah, the subtitle of the book is a new anthology of Chinese fiction and fantasy in translation. So um, this, if if you've read the two Ken Liu anthologies that Tar put out, you'll have noticed that the first book um, did have, there was one or two stories that you could say had some like kind of fantasy elements, but it was really presented in the, especially in the like intro essays as being an anthology of sci-fi. Um, that was Invisible Planets, the first one. Uh, the second one, Broken Stars. Ken Liu mentioned in his intro that some of he was trying to include some of the other genres that kind of go alongside sci-fi in China. So um, some f- fantasy. I mean that. I guess that goes alongside sci-fi in. In, uh, in literature in general and in English and he also included um a story that was more of a specific Chinese genre a sort of time ta- time travel historical fantasy sort of thing uh the sh- the snow of I think it was Jin yang but I might be wrong yeah so it's interesting to see that the um fantasy coming along with with sci-fi in, in, in translation is another thing so Tor is kind of doing that again they they're in a way they're whether it's deliberate or not. They're taking it a step further so that's interesting to see okay third piece of news um heading out of genre fiction back into um sort of literary fiction if you want to if you want to call it that um so i mentioned earlier um on a previous episode that the newman prize had been announced and they shortlisted the various authors so that's um it's a it's a prize for chinese literature and it's sponsored by the university of oklahoma institute for u.s china issues um Yes, I am just reading this off the page here. The Newman Prize is awarded by Ennoly in recognition of outstanding achievement in prose or poetry that best captures the human condition and is conferred solely on the basis of literary merit. Uh, and the winner gets 10,000 US dollars, a commemorative plaque, and a bronze medallion. Previous winners include... Oh no, interesting, these are... Oh, scratch that part. So yeah, um, basically, to, to cut a long story short, the winner was Yan Lienko, he won it this time, um, so not for any particular work, I think. But Yan ko was the winner. Um, he is, I think, yeah, he's a writer who writes pretty much like dissident works that go go into issues uh, in China's present or history and present them critically, basically. So politically critical writing. And the guy, he he Yan, he still lives in China. He doesn't get much. Uh, it's very hard for him to publish. He's, I think, generally disliked by the literary establishment and heavily censored and so on, but um, he's never, or at least he's not, in in, in jail or anything like that. Um, We have a statement here from another former show guest, Eric Abrahamson, who was one of the jurors who um, helped select him. So he's kind of gave a statement about why uh, he likes Jan, or why Jan was the winner. So here we go. This is Eric Abrahamson's quote. Jan's writing... Does for the Chinese heartland what John Steinbeck did for the American West or Thomas Hardy for Southwest England? He remains vitally invested in the ethical responsibility of the author. Though it has been demonstrated to him again and again that his explorations of China's historical trauma are not welcome, he seems not to take the hint and persists in laying bare what he sees as the original sins of modern Chinese society. His stubbornness and the perpetual freshness of his sorrow over historical tragedy. Are worthy of respect. So yeah, um, I've not read anything by Jan Lianke yet. Um, I would really like to though. Um, I think the the one I'm particularly drawn to is the 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 one the day the sun died. I think that's what it's called. Just because that's the, the title itself, and I think the premise of the book are right up my sort of alley, uh, my aesthetic alley. So yeah, um, congratulations, Jan Lianke. That's the end of the Church of Fake News. It was a little bit longer this time. I've, I think but you know, I it was cool news. I liked, I liked going into it. By the way, if you're listening and or if you are a listener and you come across some news that you think should be covered on the show in whatever the upcoming episode happens to be, don't hesitate to get in touch uh, via social media or what have you. That would be really great. You'd save me some work and you know, you might catch things that I'm not seeing, which would also be great. So yeah, don't be shy there. Anyway, enough waffling. Let's begin the interview between me and Bruce Humes about Last quarter of the month. So on the show, we have Bruce Humes. Hi, Bruce. How's it going? And what have you been up to lately?
1: Well, recently, I, I, I left um, Corona Paradise, uh, which is Taiwan, where there's just, just about you know, no cases at all. Uh, but my uh, visa ran out and, and they let me stay for a long time. I finally moved uh, from there to, uh, I'm in Istanbul now, in Turkey. Uh, so I'm studying uh, Turkish uh, and really enjoying being in in Turkey uh, because uh, you know as long as you're wearing a mask and uh, you know um, taking the usual usual precautions uh, you can travel throughout the country. So I've been to Trabzon recently to an ancient monastery, fourth century, and um, I'm currently translating an autobiography. Of a Chinese archaeologist who dedicated her career to the Ku or the Mogao caves, which are located in Dunhuang, you know, the very famous grottos there, where you know, Indian civilization, Central Asian civilization, and Chinese came together uh, over several centuries and, and uh, left uh, dozens and dozens of caves with uh, mainly Buddhist uh, paintings in them. So it was pretty interesting. And it's my second Silk Road related book in the last year.
0: Would I be right in saying that you're in general quite interested in kind of places and times when different kind of civilizations and cultures have had some like mixing or exchange or have just existed on a frontier together? Is is that something that kind of um, gets your brain going? Am I right in thinking
1: that? Oh, absolutely. So you know I, I you know went to China uh, and uh, you know had a career in publishing and so on in in the big cities, which are of course dominated by the Han uh, and then I began to be interested in 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 the other peoples of china and so that naturally over a period of ten fifteen years it it, it got me interested in um, in the borderlands and so I was uh, uh, you know where non-Chinese, uh, non-Han Chinese, uh, you know, live for centuries and then gradually, uh, you know, mixed with um, the Han Chinese, uh, particularly the Northeast and um, peoples who speak uh, an Altaic language uh, and Altaic meaning uh, possibly, well, there's, there's three main components. It would be the Tungusic languages like Manchu and then you have Mongolian and the Turkic languages uh, like Uyghur. Uh, so yeah, I'm very interested in in, in the mixing and in and, and the way uh, people are integrated uh, into a society and the way that ideas flow from one group, one ethnicity to another, yeah.
0: Pardon me if this is a very um, ill-informed question, but since you're studying Turkish now, could that potentially help you um, understand other languages in the Turkic language family, including uh, the ones which are kind of still present inside China?
1: Um, Absolutely. So, you know, I've, I've, altogether, I've studied eight languages. uh, And so the Romance languages, for instance, uh, you know, Spanish and Italian are pretty close. Uh, But uh, actually the Turkic languages, uh, you know, you're going all the way from uh, say Inner Mongolia and, uh, uh, Xinjiang all the way to Turkey there are you know various nations most of which end with S-T-A-N you know the stands mm. that speak uh, whether people speak some kind of Turkic language and particularly if you're looking at it as written if it's romanized uh, I think if you know any Turkic language you can probably figure out an awful lot of what it says uh, but apparently for instance At the beginning of the 20th century, you know, well-educated person in Istanbul could, uh, you know, taken a a train or whatever to uh, somewhere in Xinjiang, like Urumqi, and and gotten off the train and, and, uh, you know, spoken to people, uh, might have had to write out some things, but would have been able to communicate. So the Turkish language, in terms of sound, and I'm not a linguistic uh, expert at all, but in terms of sound, it's very similar um you know, as you move from you know one country to another and, you know meet meet with different dialects but there's not that much change
0: that's fascinating i would like to keep talking about this but we should probably shift our focus from the northwest to the northeast which is the setting of our book for this episode last quarter of the moon and it's about herding people who uh, live in the kind of the, well the part of china which they live in is the far northeast but they also exist beyond the borders too which we'll be talking about and that people are the evenki so i think um for this episode before we start talking about the book itself uh, the thing that we should get a grips with get to grips with is the evenki uh, themselves so here here's my first question along those lines um you, you've already talked a wee bit about china's ethnic diversity especially around its borders. And I think for some of the listeners of this show, that's going to be quite common knowledge. They might know a little bit or a lot, but we might also have some other listeners who really it's really much, very much like new territory for them. It's something that we'll have to kind of fill in, uh, join the dots for them. So can you give us a quick overview of how the Evenki fit into kind of the, uh, I don't want to use, I was about to say ethnic tapestry, that seems way too belabored, but how they fit in uh, as an ethnic group in China's Northeast.
1: Right. So there, of course, there's a, a number of officially recognized Ethnicities in that area, um, and uh, there's of course the Manchu, uh, the Evenki, various uh, speakers of the Tungusic languages. So, and Manchu and Evenki uh, are both uh, belong to that. There's the uh, the Daur, who are uh, I believe a Mongolic people who speak a language uh, close to Mongolia, and Altogether, um, most of them probably at one point or another uh, had their roots in um, uh, what the Russians would call the Far East Siberia, really. So the Ivenki, uh, their roots are in Siberia near Lake Baikal, which of course now is today is in in Russia. These people, if you were to uh, see many of them, I think, Uh, You know, if you're from the United States or Canada, you would think they look an awful lot like Eskimos, and I would assume they're um, related, but I don't know quite how. Um, So a lot of the area of what was uh, northeast, what is northeast China uh, uh, was uh, really the homeland of the Manchus in particular, and the Evenki were a fairly smaller group of people. Um, there's only about 60,000 of them now uh and they're split pretty evenly between uh Russia uh and um China mainly uh either Heilongjiang the province of Heilongjiang and to a certain extent uh, Inner Mongolia
0: so the the book covers this uh or at least it, it presents a version of how the Evenki or at least the Evenki the family that we follow their ancestors were kind of driven out of an expanding Russia into into what became uh, China, China's northeast, and it's, it's impossible, I guess. Like w- when I arrived in China, I had a lot to learn, and it's impossible to learn it all very quickly. So quite regularly, I would um, I'd learn something new about about the country or the region that it's in, and my mind would be blown yet again. And I remember one thing that kind of was an, yet another. Miniature um, mind explosion that reframed how I understood the country was um, when I was talking to a, a Russian friend I had who was from Vladivostok, and she showed me where Vladivostok was on the map, and then said, I, I forget if it was she told me or if I looked it up myself, but Vladivostok that was once a territory, a Chinese territory, and it it became Russian, I guess at some point in history, and. When you, that, that, that led me down a whole kind of thought of, oh, what, so what was this region before it was Russian or perhaps before it was Chinese? How many times has it changed hands? It's not something I have a full understanding of, but it was interesting to come back to it in the context of, of this book, which isn't, uh, it doesn't follow Han Chinese people, doesn't follow Russians, it's following um, another group. I don't think that leads into any kind of question, really. Just, is, is there anything else we should say about the Evenki of China in particular before we... Um, I, no, this is exactly my next question. Sorry. Yeah, the question about how exactly the Evenki ended up split between Russia and China. Um, right. Can can you um, illuminate the listeners any better than I've Some just said?
1: A bit. I'm uh, I'm not uh, an expert on the on, on the history of the area, but mm. uh, it is covered to a certain extent uh, in the book uh, indirectly, and, and I read a bit about it. So really, the important date would be to remember the treaty or to mention the Treaty of Nurchinsk, which is N E R C H I N S K, which was um, negotiated between the Russians and the Manchu. And so I think actually, if uh, Vladivostok, if, if China really has any um, claim to that part of uh, of Russia, it would be because of the Manchu, not because of the Chinese. Right, right. Uh, the, the, the Manchu probably claimed that as part of their home territory. So in um, the, you know, the Cossacks uh, 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 did uh, chase the Ivenki and, and and other peoples who ended up in China, southward. Uh, and, and this treaty was negotiated. And basically, uh, what it did was set the uh, border, which is still valid today, um, at uh, the Amur River, uh, mm. which is what the Russians and, and Europeans call the Heilongjiang River, which means, uh, you know, Black Dragon River, uh, so, essentially, north of the Amur uh, became Russia, uh, and this was accepted by the Manchu and then the southern part uh, eventually became uh, Manchuria and then uh, Heilongjiang so uh, crucially for the Evenki, uh, uh, that meant that their spiritual home and, and probably uh, their actual home several thousand years ago, Lake Baikal was in Russia, was left in Russian hands. And so eventually what happened was that the Ivenki became split into two major groups and one of them stayed in Russia and the other uh, in Heilongjiang and Inner Mongolia. And the ones uh, who stayed in Russia apparently uh, became uh, focused mainly on uh, herding horses while those who ended up in China of course became uh the reindeer herders uh that we read about in uh last quarter of the moon
0: mm. and do we know before that split were they one or the other or do we do we know anything about that
1: uh i don't i don't know uh no i i I don't know much about uh how that split occurred otherwise but of course you know the river uh, is a is a major separator and then later on politically uh it became uh, once china and and russia and the soviet union had their uh um, breakup, if you like then it became uh impossible uh for a few decades for people to cross over normally so one would assume they speak somewhat differently uh, and and have somewhat different uh uh, customs but there is a and i i don't remember right now what the name is in russian but there is a, a region uh, just north of the Amur, which is i think it's called an oblast o-b-l-a-s-t yeah that sounds which right is devoted you know it's essentially a, a, an autonomous uh region uh, run by uh i, I think they're called Ivanks, not evenki yeah
0: mm, that's cool yeah, there's probably a whole other podcast someone else could do about the the way that borders have uh, evolved over over the the decades and the centuries, but that's not us. Um, there is something I want to slip in though um, that I think also would be worth getting to grips with, not because it directly concerns the book, but it might give it might be a useful kind of reference point later, and that's the Chinese term minzu. So. Their rough translation would be something like uh, an ethnicity. I think it's often translated as uh, nationality. But um, and I, I believe that they copied it. The Chinese state copied this from uh, Soviet Russia. But they have a set number of official minzu, like official ethnic groups. I think there's 55 or 56 of them. And I, I really I should have I should have reminded myself of this before starting the interview. But um, I want to ask you. Whether or not the evenki are one of the official minzu, because I know there are disputed ethnic groups in China who don't right. get who are not
1: but the answer is yes they are so there's fifty five uh non Han groups and then the Han are the fifty sixth right uh, so i think in in north northeast china uh it's not that big of an issue, but when you get down to um at Yunnan. That area in Guangxi, uh, there are real um, uh, discrepancies between, uh, you know, how many, uh, which group you, you're said to belong to and which group you actually feel you belong to. And I know there's a very interesting statistic, and that is that uh, something like 1952, I think the first um, census was done by the PRC, first official one. Uh, and over 400 uh, different minzu were reported to exist in the province of Yunnan alone. Oh, my God. So you can imagine, um, basically, what was going on was that the Chinese, uh, this is the first time it's ever done, and they were pretty much aping uh, the Soviets at that time. And I think they looked at that list and thought, oh, dear, <laughs> right. that's too many to deal with. And so, uh, you know, you you got shoveled into one or the other, depending perhaps on where you were living at a particular time, even though uh, the group uh, whose name went on your ID card, uh, you don't speak their language and you don't relate to those people as your people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Actually, the the same thing uh, happened in Taiwan. And in the last 10 or 15 years in Taiwan, I, I think there's about a dozen uh, the Taiwanese government has said, okay, we, we recognize that. Uh, and so, um, you know, which uh, groups should we add to that list and, and which ones do you want to belong to? But uh, as I understand it, that has not been happening in China. There's 55 uh, non-Han ethnicities and that's where it's going to stay.
0: Right. I'm just, I've just put in something into Google um, because you mentioned before that in um in Russia there is a little autonomous uh, oblast little district which is kind of dedicated in a way to to the events of Russia and i've just reminded myself by the magic of magic of google um china has a rough equivalent it's in inner mongolia um and it's the awenki autonomous banner i guess banner that's a reference to the um Manchu banners of, of, the, of the Qing dynasty. But um, this one's in Inner Mongolia and the action of our book, Last Quarter of the Moon, is it's nowhere near there. Right. Uh,
1: the Ivenki, the uh, the, they are somewhat spread out uh, in, in, in northeast China. But uh, my understanding is that most of them uh, traditionally lived in what are called the Greater Qing'an Mountains, as K-H-I-N-G-A-N, which is Da Xingan uh, in, in Chinese. And, and, the, and those mountains themselves, I think, uh, are partly in Heilongjiang uh, and partly in Inner Mongolia. Right. But nowadays, uh, you know, at the, uh, near the end of the novel, uh, they do, uh, they're basically forced uh, out of uh, their home in the mountains, and the particular clan that is covered uh, in the book, really, uh, actually ended up being uh, moving themselves, if you like, uh, settling at least for a while in the city of Gunhe, as G E N H E, of uh, Inner Mongolia.
0: Right, okay. Well, pardon me, I stand corrected. And um, this actually leads really nicely on to my next question. So we've, we've established that are uh, Ivenki are, at least the Evenki of China are a reindeer herding people. Um, and they're also a nomadic people. So they, um, at least as I've learned in, in last quarter of the moon, they go from uh, place to place, um, never degrading the environment too much that it's permanently uh, diminished. So the the rate, at least in the book, the reindeer eat a particular kind of moss, and the Ibenki always move on before the moss is uh, depleted. But yeah, by the end of the novel, like you're saying, there a, si- a significant number of them have switched to um, like a, a settled life, like uh, the ones me and you. Well, maybe not yourself being on the road right now, but um, yeah, the lives that most of us live in one place with a, a roof. And uh, walls around his roof
1: over our head, and so on.
0: Um, is there much we can say about the, the nomadic lifestyle of, of the Evenki? Or
1: sure, yeah, sure. There's some very interesting things about it. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the things is that uh, people probably assume that they uh, they eat their reindeer, but they don't. Um, <laughs> the reindeer for them are pretty sacred, and so what they do with their reindeer. Uh, is to let them go off, mainly during the night. Uh, that's when they go foraging for uh, uh, the uh, kind of fungus they they like to eat and, and, and other things. And they'll come back, particularly because um, uh, their young ones are not allowed to go out at the same time. So uh, they, they use their reindeer for a number of things. One of them is for their milk. So they make... Uh, uh, something like yogurt from it. Uh, and they use the, the reindeer to transport their, uh, their houses, which really um, are what an American would call a teepee. Mm. Uh, I don't know uh, if that is the term in Canada, but uh, I, I remember translating an uh, uh, early part of the book. Uh, and it was pretty difficult to understand until I took a picture, it, excuse me, I, I went on Google and I, and I saw uh, what these, uh, they're called Shiranju, uh, look like, and it, it, it's really just a teepee. Yeah. So hmm. um, their nomadic lifestyle uh, is a little different than the, uh, say, the Mongols, because they're the Mongolians, because Mongolians live in, in a yurt, and a yurt is a, a lot bigger. Right. So... I can't really imagine more than three or four people in, in one of these teepees. And they love their Renu very much, they have very personal relations with them. Um, uh, and they also, they're semi nomadic. So moving every few months was the impression I got uh, reading the book. Right. Um, and it's very important to them to be able to move because uh, later on, uh, when they did try and live in Ganghe, you know, near the city, in, in so-called fixed settlements, um, the reindeer started dying off. Uh, and they were feeding them kind of feed, and, and of course hay and so on. Um, and uh, the reindeer were just miserable, because they want to be free. Uh, and so that's that's part of their, their lifestyle, not so much that they're you know maybe always thinking we we want to be sure that we don't decimate an area but the reindeer do like to move and they, and they like to have fresh food so i think the uh, another point is that they are speakers of a tungusic language which i said is is related to is not far from manchu uh and that uh, means that they were living in mountains where other people spoke Russian, Mongolian, Manchu, uh, and a little Chinese. So, uh, whether you know geographically, or linguistically, uh, uh, and ethnically, uh, a very distinct people, uh, really pretty much unrelated to the Han.
0: Right. Yeah, it's a a good kind of lead-in as we kind of. Are starting to move from talking about the Evenki uh, in general to the book, the uh, the characters of Last Quarter of the Moon.
1: Um, hey, hey, I, let me bring yeah. in here. I, I really missed two very important points. Oh, though. okay, that's fine. Okay, so, um, or even three. So they are uh, they're reindeer hunt- they're herders, but they're also hunters and gatherers. Mm-hmm. That's very important. So very good, uh, very good hunters. And there are a number of scenes in the book uh, where they're out, uh, you know, doing, imitating um, deer calls and so on. They love to eat uh, moose and deer. And when they return, you know, when the hunters return with a kill, everybody in the camp uh, gets a decent uh, portion. So whether or not you're a woman uh, or uh, a male who's too old now to go uh, hunting or whatever. This is a highly collective society. So in the book, uh, you're really dealing with one clan, and that clan is the Aoguila, A O G U L. Let's <laughs> see, A O. I'll come back to that in a minute. Yeah. One, yeah. uh, this one uh, clan, uh, and uh, they look after one another. Uh, you know, even when they get older, so the, the final point that I, I didn't bring up, which would be a travesty not to mention, is that you know they're animists, uh, mm, and yes. they're, they're shamanists, so uh, that's very important,
0: yeah. That was uh, kind of where, where I was going with this next question to some extent. Um, so I read Wolf Totem not so long before uh, reading this one, and you mentioned there's different, although there's there's a nomadic mongol way of life and there's a nomadic uh, Evenki way of life there are like uh, similarities and, and differences like, like you mentioned um and i w- probably at least this once it'd be worth mentioning some similarities and differences between last quarter of the moon and wolf totem um, so w- w- one one big similarity is they're both um writ- works written by han authors um looking at pretty much other non-Han minzu, so to speak um other ethnicities within, within China but a thing that you really uh, Wolf Totem does not let you ignore is that it has a, like a big ecological argument it's a it's a kind of a, a lament about how how um I guess economic changes really or whatever you want to call them but um change changes at the like the human political economic level brought Ruination to the, like the ecosystems that um, the ethnic Mongols were living on, living in in uh, Inner Mongolia, and they're like you mentioned, the Evenki people. They're they're animists. They have very strong feelings about their reindeer. They live very closely with nature. Uh, it's where there's like it's where their spirituality is focused on, and. I think especially towards the end, there is some focus on like the damage done to the environment and social change and so on. But when, when you're thinking about last quarter of the moon, uh, do you think of it as like an ecological uh, novel or a novel with some kind of an eco message, or is that not the way you think about the book?
1: Oh, I think that's definitely Um You know, basically there were, there were three waves of outsiders who encroached on the Ivenki. And you know, first of all, it was the Russians who pushed them down uh, southward, mainly because they they wanted their hunting uh, territory. You know, mink in particular, very, very valuable to people that live in uh, in a cold climate, and, and the Russians wanted that mink. Um, and then, of course, the Japanese. Uh, but the first problems that they had with uh the territory where they lived was when the Han Chinese uh, came after 1949, because uh, they wanted access to the the forests, uh, these huge forests that, that had never been uh, uh, cut down. And so as they came in, uh, they built roads and then, you know, these huge uh, logging uh, trucks, you know, coming in and out and, and many uh, uh, lumberjacks, you know, knocking down the trees. And so what that uh, meant immediately to the uh, Evenki was that um, there were a lot less places where they could take their uh, reindeer who were sensitive to the noise uh, and who needed uh, constantly to be eating, you know, fresh uh, types of fungus and so on that grow only where... There's a certain uh, space uh between trees that allows the sunlight in but not too much uh so uh you know within five ten fifteen years of of uh, the logging uh their environment was being destroyed the environment they needed for their for their reindeer and then uh as uh you moved into the sixties and seventies. Um, the, uh, the Chinese were concerned that um, there was too much hunting going on. Uh, of course, only only some of it was being done by the Evenki, and so eventually uh, the Evenki Iven- were banned from hunting. So they went, uh, you know, from having uh, it, from being hunters and gatherers and 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 herders to really being only herders, and then of course. You know the land was uh uh they were restricted where they could go and then their their animals could not find enough uh fresh fungus to to survive hmm. so uh, definitely uh, and i think that's uh it is uh an ecological tale and it's very well told by in that sense by uh Jen, who at one point i think uh, uh the narrator uh, is berated by a, a party official who has come to talk to them and try to get them to to move down out of the mountains. Um, this would be late eighties, early nineties, uh, and to you know so-called fixed uh, resonances. Uh, and and she says, uh, "Look, we the Evenki, we're nothing more than." Uh, uh, our footprint is equivalent to, uh, you know, that of a ching-ting. Uh, 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 it's not a firefly. What is it? There's very elegant flies that, um, mm, I can't think of the word right now, <laughs> um, you know, a, 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 a skimming uh, a stream. I yeah. mean, we, we, we don't have a footprint. And you come here and you knock down all the trees, and you use, you know, uh, rifles uh, uh, to decimate the, the local animals. Uh, how can you blame us? You know, so it's a very it's a very moving, uh, very moving scene, exactly. and uh, there's no doubt about it. It, it is a and a, a novel with a, a message about the ecology, but a very different one than, say, Wolf Totem. Uh, which is, is about uh the uh the mongolians on the on the open plain and how much of the grass uh and and what damage their uh, sheep and horses and so might be doing to to that environment, but the evenki uh comparatively speaking uh, a very light touch a very a very small footprint
0: yeah this kind of leads me into something uh, i was meaning to ask you so i'm trying to think of like another contrast between wolf totem and last quarter of the moon and one that springs to mind uh, just now is that wolf totem is i don't know for for lack of a better term it's an extremely male book as well as the eco message there's a huge amount of battle imagery and war tactics strategy language to describe things which you know didn't necessarily have to be described that way like the way nature and particularly wolves operate is described as if it's uh like a in in language that you'd associate with battle tactics and 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 things like that and uh, all the characters are are male bar one woman who again for lack of a better term she kind of just behaves like one of the lads uh so yeah so there there's that. And then we have Last Quarter of the Moon, where our narrator is is a woman. It's about her life story and the cast, it's a familial group. So it's, you know, represented accurately, like in any family, there are men, there are women, there are old men, old women, there are boys, there are girls. And yeah, the thing the thing is written by a female author, narrated by a woman. And the point this is getting me to is When I tried looking for some like academic uh, secondary reading about the book, and I went hunting behind the academic paywall, um, I did find quite a lot of stuff, but it looked like it was written uh, or possibly auto-translated or just written in quite janky English from Chinese universities. Um, So I was kind of looking through that to find the one that had a very clearly written title, at least in English. And I got one from an academic called uh, Lan Lan Du, or Du Lan Lan, a woman working in uh, Shanghai Jiao Tong University. And it was looking at the book and another one about Native Americans from the like uh, the term eco-feminist perspective. And the essay starts off by explaining what uh, the basic kind of starting point of eco-feminism is. And the starting point is that eco-feminists argue that um, the domination of women by the patriarchy and the domination of the environment by like economic forces let's say are structurally linked that's the starting assumption and then the argument goes from there looking at the ways that women are uh, treated or represented in in the, in the novels and the way the environment is i i'm not sure how much we can get from reading last quarter of the moon that way but i do think it was it was a good starting point to get me thinking about how in some way it's a book about women or, or being a woman in, in, in that kind of uh, chain in that changing period in that region of the world. Uh, but do, do you think there's, there's much to go on there, the linking women's life and their treatment and the treatment of the environment in, in this book?
1: You know, I never, I never gave that any thought. I'm not sure that I could add anything to that kind of conversation. Um, it I, I do agree that uh, you know the the narrator is a woman, mm. uh, the writer is a woman, the narrator is a woman, uh, and um, possibly, well certainly, uh, her insights into the uh, psychology of the narrator, uh, you know, is it, quite moving and, and and quite profound. But no, I I, I I I wouldn't know what to say to that
0: yeah I kind of felt the same reading the essay. I felt that i I should have some kind of um some kind of smart point here. I don't really, but now that I think of it actually, I recall reading the book. a thing that struck me as uh, kind of a surprise um was the role of the shaman um so the shaman of the tribe at the start of the book it's a man. Uh, But the torch eventually passes to at least one of the younger women. I don't know if more than one woman uh, holds the role of shaman. Maybe, maybe, yeah, from my assumption, my, you know, in in quote marks, patriarchal assumption was only men could be shamans. But um, in the Venki uh, society, that's not the case, because I remember... When I was doing some reading around, looking at some a site that has some really nice, uh, really interesting pictures of evenki you sent me. Uh, I'm pretty sure there was a, a female shaman. I think one of the last shamans of the Evenki I think right it's documented as a woman. Is there much we can say about that?
1: Right. Well, uh, I think uh, like in most traditional societies, uh, certainly like uh, West Africa and, and say the Mon- uh, the Mongolians. Uh, I've been. I, I translated part of a novel by uh, a, a Mongolian uh, who grew up in Inner Mongolia, a Chinese citizen. His name is Guo uh, Xuebo, G-U-O-X-U-E-B-O, uh, G-U-O-X-U-E-B-O. Mm. and he wrote a, a, a novel in Chinese, uh, and I've translated uh, a small part of an extract, and in it, uh, it, it's it's obvious that uh traditionally among the uh mongolians um uh, it's not easy for a woman to become a shaman because at least in the novel um there is a woman who uh, is, who works as a as a midwife but actually uh, acquires uh the role of a uh, of a shaman even though Uh, her mentor or would be mentor refuses to teach her certain things because she's a woman. So I would assume that, you know, there's a prejudice there, but uh, in, in uh, last quarter of the moon, uh, no. Um, You're chosen by fate, not by your agenda. Mm. And so the first one is indeed uh, a male and he's rather um, in his own way, somewhat self-destructive. And then uh, the the, uh, the woman who takes over um, uh, as the shaman for this uh, this clan is quite tragic because uh, she's very sensitive to things that cannot be seen, uh, where someone is at a certain time. Her children, she somehow knows uh, that they're in trouble. But the the very sad thing about it is that. Each time she saves someone using, uh, you know, her, her, she goes into a, uh, uh, what they call a trance dance uh, and perhaps uh, exercises a demon or helps them get well. The the price of that is that one of her own children dies. So it's really quite tragic. Uh, And you feel it uh, again, you know, it's a female author, uh, female narrator, and it's very painful. So... It was possible among the event for a female to become a shaman, but I'm not sure that it was quite as in traditional times. And I'm sure it happened quite that much.
0: Mm, Right. Good answer. And this kind of makes me want to jump ahead slightly to a question I wrote about shamanic magic in in last quarter of the moon so we've already established it's it's very important for their belief in the way they understand the world and relate to it and how they go about their way of life it's all sort of tied together in their uh, animism and their shaman is in a way like the as well as being someone who can kind of call on powers to help them out when they need it it's the, the shaman is kind of like their their mediator with the unseen parts of the natural world what i'm getting to here is that in across the course of the novel, we see multiple instances where the shamans seem to be doing real magic, or to put it another way, by their own kind of arts, particular to them, they manage to bring about changes in the real world, um, which are aimed at benefiting the tribe. Things like we we're just describing, like curing a sickness, or, or and, and so on. And then, like conversely, uh, for the, the the shamaness, female shaman. Not only is she able to affect the world positively, but her her acts or spells or whatever you want to call them also have adverse costs, which, again, appear to be real. Magic seems to be real to some extent in the book. Um, and we also see some instances where animals seem to possess some kind of magic or things ha- involving animals that would seem to defy you know, science or the laws of nature or something, happen. So my question is just, what what do you make of all of these? Why do you think Chizijian included what appears to be uh, magic in the book?
1: Well, I think there's uh, there's several levels that one could talk about. One of them is that she grew up in uh, at northeast China uh, in a town called Mohe, which actually is on the Argon, which is a tributary of the, of the Amur. Uh, and actually, Mohe is... Supposed to be the northernmost uh, outpost in all of China. So very cold. Right. Uh, and she, over the years, has written uh, a few dozen short stories uh, and, and several novels. But the short stories in particular, I've read all of them. I read a few of them, uh, do tend to uh, have a motif of folk legends, if you like, which involve uh, spirits Uh, And and shamans, uh, this sort of thing. And that is actually present uh, in in the culture of the peoples, of the non-Han people of northeast China. So for her to write about it uh, is is quite normal. In terms of literary trends, I mean, it's obvious that she's read some of the Latin American, Mm. uh, possibly other place uh, uh, authors. Who you know become well known because of their quote magical realism yeah. and uh, that that's really been there was a while there in China where everybody not everybody but writers of of, of her generation uh, became enthralled with that that sort of thing and 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 uh, readers appreciate it, so you could say it's it's merely a tool to gain interest in their writing uh, but uh, for me. On a you know high personal level, as as a person and a reader, and I and I once had a bit of an argument with <laughs> to the gym because I told her I said I didn't just translate your your novel. I said I read it. You know I read it first before I translated it, and and you know it hit me in the gut. And there are certain things that uh, really struck me, and this use of magic and and uh, you know the the animist uh, uh, aura in the book and and mountains and trees and animals having uh, uh their own spirit their own soul it feels quite genuine to me uh, and one of the reasons is that i grew up i grew up in the north people often ask me where i come from and of course in china you know so if you say you'd be you know from the north then they think oh you mean manchuria uh i said well, no I, I wasn't born in manchuria i was, I was <laughs> raised outside of chicago but um in some ways quite similar. Uh the snows a good four months of the year uh around Chicago, Wisconsin, uh that area. It's it's really almost uh, uh, in terms of weather, it's more like Canada than America, than the United States. And I had a, a deep emotional attachment to nature, to the long snowy winters, uh the forests, uh which you know, I spent several uh months of uh my preteen years in uh, uh, camping out uh, at at summer camps for two or three months during which time I didn't see my parents. And we were taught how to dance and how to make a bow and arrow and so on by Native Americans. And I, at that time, felt deeply attached to uh, particularly freshwater lakes and pine tree forests uh, and strange rocks and mountains. And then later on, uh, when I lived in Hong Kong, uh, I uh, went to Japan several times to study Japanese. And I always, I always felt that the, the Buddhist temples in Japan were just totally tasteless. And then one time I went to a Shinto mm-hmm. um, a temple and I was just blown away. I thought, well, I belong here. Uh, which, of course, the Japanese would think is very funny because they think of it as a national religion. Yes. But it's animist, uh, and I really related to it. So to get back to your question, um, I feel that uh, the way the book was written, that most of those references and those scenes are very well done. Uh, and, and therefore, uh, uh, given my past uh, and the fact that I'm, you know, I'm, not, I'm, not, a, uh, I'm not a Christian, uh, I'm not Jewish. I'm not Muslim. I don't belong to the Abrahamic uh, religions. Uh, they, the closest thing in my, in my life to something like religion is, is something along the lines of a difficult to describe animism. Therefore, uh, I thought she did a very good job of bringing those things animate and animate, animate alive. And I found it quite believable. But uh, nonetheless, I would think, uh, as I mentioned in a few of my interviews about the book um, that, that appeared in China, it, the novel was not perfect. And I felt one of the weaker parts was uh, she's very good with the shamans uh, and, and their rights and so on. But particularly uh, the things they sing during their trance dances and so on. Um, Maybe because it was all in in Hamwen, you know, it was all in Chinese. And I just can't imagine uh, the Evenki speaking Chinese, especially when they're communicating with the (laughs) spirits. So that was a disappointment to me. Right. So, you know, my answer would be uh, I think uh, she's a professional writer. Uh, She uses those things to uh, uh, make her story more interesting, but it, is very well interwoven into the plot and uh to me quite believable uh that these people would uh would have these kind of feelings and do these kind of things
0: Mm. yeah what you were saying about not having a religion but feeling something like that in a connection to the earth that's uh, yeah i found that really i don't normally say something this sincere and cheesy to my guests on the show but yeah i found that really moving um i like my own something i've never talked about on the show because why would i but um first 12 years of my life i went to church um the reason for that was my mom thought i wanted to go and i thought my mom wanted to go so it was a sort of an uh, <laughs> a vacuous circle of uh, obligations yeah. i was there um and yeah it, it didn't really do much for me except made me feel morally superior and guilty all the time so wasn't great. <laughs> um a, kind of a, an amazing amazingly human combo of um feeling good and feeling bad at the same time and feeling feeling uh good for bad reasons. That's why I associate with Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um so around the time of like uh start of high school so in scotland and uk high school starts about 12 there's no middle school so about 12 years old i was like no you know what uh i'm i'm an agnostic i'm not so sure about this and then age 14 becoming a bit more of a firebrand, brand it's like no i'm i'm an atheist because i'm not i'm i have strong opinions and i'm not stuck in the middle and then hitting like 17 starting to think about like what is my place in the universe um do I really, you know, I is do I really want to believe anything? Like, I'm, I'm going to work out. At that age, I was very into, like, exactly defined things. I guess that's not an unusual impulse for a, a teenager or a very young adult. Um, so I was like, okay, I'm going to work out exactly what my political beliefs are, and I'm going to slap a label on them. And I suppose because there is a field for that in my Facebook profile, I should do the same for my religious beliefs too, um, or at least my spiritual beliefs. And the one I settled on after having learned a little bit of like basics of Western philosophy, the one I liked was pantheism, which is, uh, it doesn't really have many requirements of the believer. But like the fundamental thing is, if you're a pantheist, you believe uh, God is not a thinking being or not a being. You believe God and the universe are the same thing. So they're synonyms and it can kind of imply some kind of reverence of, of nature and you you believe that nothing exists outside the universe that reality is all there is even if your senses you can't pick up all of it and you're part of it you're not separate from it either and nowadays as, as an adult who's realized labels are very unhelpful in the same way christianity is unhelpful it's just another way to think that you're great and have the right idea um now as far as like what i think the universe and the right way to relate to it is i'm I'm not so certain but i think what you were saying about finding something you know not 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 in uh, romanticizing the beliefs of the various indigenous peoples of the world who um uh, couldn't really mesh with the coming of modernity the answer is obviously not to romanticize them but if if you can if you got something out of connect that uh that vision or that way of connecting with nature i think there's a lot to it and i'd i think it might like i'm really i'm really waffling now so thank you for being patient but yeah i i think there is something to reality that those people experience that modernity wipes away for the modern individual um just just yesterday i was talking to my girlfriend about uh, cats and i told her the story about what cats cats um don't worry this is going somewhere and there was i was telling her about a cat that used to live on my granny's street and it was like a A cat of the street so it had official owners but it basically lived at every house it would go and spend time with everybody and then one day it just the 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 family moved away the cat went all the way out into the the countryside north of Dundee and it, it it took the journey in the car so there's no way it could know the way back but then give it like a week and the cat shows up again on the street and um, the way I think about that is, of course, there is some kind of scientific explanation, but that it's something that's so deep in nature. I feel that there's some there there are things in the ways that animals have their relationship with the world around them that we've lost that perhaps some ways of life that still exist on the planet have just recently lost or still have and uh, yeah, I don't know. I that doesn't really equate to a religious belief, but I really believe it's important to have a good relationship with with the universe, and in some ways, that might be the one kind of magic that can exist on the earth. So, yeah, um, I'm not. I don't know if well, we can, I think we anybody that, for me, that feels, yeah.
1: feels, you know, uh, uh, ties to nature, seeing, uh, you know, climate change, mm. um, uh, it, it is frightening. And it, it it makes one feel, to a certain extent, that you know we're we're paying a price for abusing uh, the world. And uh, in uh, one of the better parts of the novel, actually, well, not the novel itself, but the writing that she did about it, is that uh, Jen wrote an afterword, and she laments the fact that. Uh, yes okay perhaps uh god did expel us from the the garden of eden but not in order to rape mother nature uh and it's pretty clear now that we've been abusing in a horrible horrible way uh, our environment and uh, it's coming back to haunt us it's uh, quite frightening Mm -hmm. and if you really love it the way uh certain indigenous people do as a uh you know typically uh, like the aborigines of uh, Australia, uh the Native Americans, Native Canadians, uh, it must be very, very um saddening. But even those of us who didn't grow up in that kind of tradition were beginning to get the message.
0: Yeah. Um there there's a song that I've discovered just this year. Um it's by a band called The Handsome Family, and it basically it, it kind of it's about but I was trying really ineptly with far too many words to get across the feeling of like disconnection from losing a connection with nature that you maybe didn't even realize you have and that the animals still have. Um the lyrics go something like this. They used to think the swallows were living underwater all through the winter when they were missing from the trees. They used to think the geese budded from the branches each gentle sunny spring when they came back again. But the swallows and the geese They have always heard the ringing of the bells that echo through the earth, and then to skip to the last four lines. But the airplanes overhead hang heavy in the air. All the shiny cars, they circle in despair. Where am I, they cry. Where are you? Where am I? But they will never hear the bells that ring tonight. And I feel like a bit of an idiot for quoting lyrics from some random song, but um, when I think about the place that the narrator is in at the it kind of is a what do you call it uh like a book ending uh, there is a better there's a there's a more technical term than i've forgotten but we start off with the narrator as an old lady at the end of her life and she's kind of the way i felt about it is that she's kind of looking back on the, like the ruins of her life and her, her um her tribe and then so after that opening we go back to her start her girlhood and then by the end of the novel we're right there back at the end and it feels like i guess maybe she's not the one who's circling in despair saying where am i where am i but the younger people of the tribe have they've had to deal with the modern world and uh, the modern economy one of them becomes an artist and joins china's uh, art scene but there's a huge drift into alcoholism depression aimlessness and i know this is a i know alcoholism is a pretty big issue in uh the what are they called the reservations of of north america right i mean maybe this is um speaking making a stupid generalization but i feel like the despair those rapidly modernized um indigenous people feel could be a little bit like well a little bit like the source of Angst we have as people to cut off from the nature that we spring from, and who knows when when climate change really starts to bite and the world starts to, you know, the, the nature that we've disregarded comes back to haunt us. I, I you know, I, that that feeling of like, what the hell happened? Where am I? What's going on? I, can, I can, I feel like that might be the the age to come, an age of even greater, just like, where am I? What's happening?
1: Disaffection, yeah. Yeah. One of the things that uh, your listeners might want to do, uh, besides reading a novel, if they want to get a better understanding of the Evenki and of uh, some things you're just talking about, you know, the uh, uh, their, their their loss of of, of sense of who they are and, and where they fit in 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 the world uh, has been uh, captured very well, not just by uh, this novel but uh, in uh, documentaries by someone named uh, Gu Tao. Mm. And Gu Tao uh, is G G U, and, and his own name is T-A-O. He's, uh, I, I believe, either half or full of Manchu, uh, and he's a, a, a documentary uh, uh, cineast. And his father uh, was very interested in the Evenki, and actually lived with, and hunted with the Evenki for a few months in the 80s and wrote a book about it, which I read. So Goodhau has gone on to uh, use his camera and his, his uh, uh, do documentaries of actually the clan uh, upon which this book is pretty much based because Trithagen did for a week, maybe ten days, I think, live with uh, or nearby uh, the Evenki clan. Some of whose uh, characters are based on them. And he has gone, and become friends with them, uh, and over the years has shot several documentaries about them. And they're pretty shocking uh, because at least one of them really just you follow a, a, a man in his late 30s, early 40s around. And he's back living in the mountains uh, and, and herding reindeers as well. And, but only intermittently. Why? Because he's getting drunk all the time. And you see him in the documentary, you know, stumbling around. He's a bit of a poet. Uh, and he sings these songs and he's very melancholic. Uh, but it's really painful. Mm. Uh, and, and that brings up uh, a question of and uh, and and you know a number of people who have written about I you know in, in fictionalized form or in, in documentary form about this um uh you know post 1990s uh now they live in fixed residence uh what happens to them and it's really tough and one of in, in one of the uh, documentaries he he does, a young boy who has left the mountains uh, and is being schooled in probably Gunghe, you know, some city in uh, Inner Mongolia, mm. learning Chinese, uh, you know, comes home and can hardly, he's about 10, and really has trouble relating to mum. Mum is a heavy drinker. Uh, and, you know, she doesn't want to live in one of those fixed residences. So she's still out there, not necessarily in a teepee anymore, but in uh, in a tent, you know, living uh, uh, that kind of life. Uh, and, and her son really has trouble uh, relating to her. And, of course, now he doesn't know how to herd uh, reindeer uh, and probably will soon speak Chinese better than... Uh so uh, quite quite sad. So uh, your your listeners might want to uh, go and watch them. He's done other stuff, and he's uh, uh, with the Ivenki, uh some which is quite beautiful. And he, I think, he's uh, uh, done a, a documentary uh, which focuses on uh, a shaman doing his trance dance and so on. Very interesting.
0: Yeah, thank you for the recommendation. That- were the uh, pictures that you linked me to to check out were they gutau's uh, pictures
1: and that that website was set up by Gutau. really I mean your listeners uh you know if they you know want to sh- at any point whether they've started the book or they're thinking about it or they've already read it, they should go to it's called northern Hunting Culture. Mm. Uh, you find it on google pretty pretty easily and it's yeah. got hundreds of pictures of the uh, you know the reindeer uh being herded, uh, lying around, uh, and all the you know, handicrafts and so on that the Yankees do uh, using birch bark and so on. Great.
0: Fantastic. I'll be sure to put a link to that in the show notes. Well we um we really got into that. That's excellent. So I've got a few more questions about the book. I'll just go through them in the, the order they're on the paper and um, we've we've talked a bit about her already uh about Ch'u, Ch'u Zijian, the author and you, you've mentioned where she's from moho um i guess we should say that she, she herself uh, she's han chinese is that right she, that's right yes so she's a han author writing about the evenki um uh, you mentioned before you weren't totally happy with the fact that she had all the evenki um speaking in in uh in in Chinese, like Han Chinese, the whole time. But do you think, on the whole, she did a a good job writing from like outside her uh, experience and outside her minzu?
1: Well, I think that's 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 you know the kind of the core question. So uh, let me introduce a bit more about her. So she she is Han, um, and she's monolingual. Okay, so that means right. that she doesn't know English, she doesn't know Japanese, she doesn't know any of the languages up there. She's just uh, you know. Uh, chinese uh she grew up in Mohe, um which has a small population of a a group of uh, an ethnicity which is very closely related to the evenki and they're called the in english generally called the Oroquen, which is o r o q e n hmm. uh, in chinese is uh uh the right so even though uh, when she was young, she didn't uh, she didn't mention that she'd ever known any Evenki, but she used to go into the mountains and uh, you know collecting firewood and so on, and with her father, and uh, she saw the orkan and she wrote about it in this afterword that I talked about. And she thought that they that they were sort of alien to the mountains. And mm-hmm. later on, when she grew up, she realized how absurd that was. That it was the all of the uh lumberjacks that were going into the mountains who were the aliens but whatever right so, uh another thing you need to understand about her she is the head of the heilongjiang branch of the state-run china writers association right so this is a person is very much part of the bureaucracy mm. uh whatever but uh I would say and, and so uh I think there's been some criticism of her among uh probably the Ivanki and people that uh are you know activists for uh, the non Han peoples and, and minorities in China. Um but uh I think she did a a good job in the in the book of it's historically it's very accurate. You know, mm-hmm. she's written very clearly about the first wave of the Russians and how that happened, and in particular, uh, we can talk about this in a minute. You know how the Japanese, uh, who got to uh, Manchuria in the thirties and the forties, how they used and manipulated the Evenki, which she she did uh, in a way that seems pretty pretty accurate. So she, uh, as I said, she's a popular writer. Uh, published a lot of short stories, a few novels. Uh, and uh, last quarter of the moon, for instance, has been translated into French, uh, Dutch, Italian, Japanese, Korean, Spanish, and and, and most lately um, Swedish by Anna Chung. Uh, and and her short stories, uh, a few of uh, a few of them, uh, a few books have actually been translated into French. She's quite popular in French. So I guess uh, the The questions surrounding her are, uh, there are a few. One of them is that uh, as a Han, who doesn't speak the language and who, uh, by her own admission, uh, she did an awful lot of research and obviously very good research because uh, all the things that I uh, read about and so on, uh, they showed up in the novel and they seem to be correct and so on. Um, Mm. But, you know, she doesn't really know these people. Has uh, never lived among them. It doesn't speak their language. So one of the first questions you have to ask is, uh, you know, what language was it written in? Well, it's obviously, it's written in Chinese, but what kind of Chinese? And and this is where it gets interesting. Uh, we all have to uh, imagine uh, if you don't know a language and you're not a linguistics uh, professor, you have to sort of imagine, you know, what that language is like. Right. And I think. Uh, Like, there's another author whose name is uh, Ranping, Ping, uh, who grew up in Inner Mongolia. He's Han, doesn't know Mongolian. uh, And he wrote uh, quite a number of things about Genghis Khan uh, and and wrote some of the movie scripts for some of the best-known films about uh, the the Mongolian Empire uh, uh, during the Yuan Chao, during the Yuan Dynasty. So here you have two people who, you know, grew up in the area, uh, didn't have all that much contact, don't know the language, and yet they've chosen to write about this people. So they're on the outside looking inside. Mm. So then the question would be in the West today with uh, so much being talked about, uh, so much relating to so-called cultural appropriation, you know. Uh, Was she guilty of any of that? Uh, uh, Did she was able to sidestep it or whatever? And I would say uh, today in Australia, in Canada, in America, I can't speak for the rest of the world, I I think her book might never have been published if she had written first person narrator, as she has, uh, as an Australian Aborigine or as a, a. a Native American or uh, an Eskimo in uh, in Canada, because simply because she's from the dominant uh, mainstream part of society. And increasingly, uh, indigenous people are saying, no, uh, that's not your business. We'll do that. So uh, I respect her for going ahead and doing it. Uh, I think she did a good job. Uh, of getting into this woman's mind, but but getting back to the language thing, I think her um, imagination of the Tungusic language, the Evenki I- 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 language, might be pretty far away from what it's all about, because I've been learning Turkish, and Tungusic is an Altaic language, Turkic is an Altaic language, and the thing about uh, uh will take languages is that they uh, they're, they belong to a group of what are called agglutinative languages. So basically, you have all this it's glue, really, uh, that allows them to a- add on suffixes, you know, three, four, five suffixes, mm. uh, so that words get quite long. So in English, you say, you know, uh, in the White House. But, of course, in, in an inclusive language with suffixes, you would say, house in. And then if it's my brother's house, it, it, it would be some, perhaps something like house in my brother's. or But it wouldn't be my brother's house or inside my brother's house. So right. it gets quite long. It's a bit like German. Uh, you know, the word's very long. And the verb comes at the end. <laughs> oh so my God. It, it, You can have one of those uh, Thomas Mann sort of structures where you have a page, you have to turn the page to get to the verb, (laughs) to the Mm -hmm. verbs, you know. And and, uh, in that sense, uh, I felt that her imagination was fell a little short because Mm. the way she wrote in Chinese is um, fairly short sentences, fairly blunt. And one of the things she did, which is a very interesting idea, and which I think was probably correct, was she worked hard to avoid what are called with these four uh character idioms that the Chinese have
0: right the Yi. It,
1: it just makes Chinese so special and 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 we all love it it's it's a bitch to translate but <laughs> um but she really avoided them. You could see that uh mm. so it, at times, the language seemed a bit flat, you know. Yeah. Um, and so, in, in that sense, I really wonder, you know, how accurate it was, but or how, how representative it was. Uh, overall, her psychological portrayal of the woman, uh, I uh, of the of the narrator, uh, I thought was uh, most of the time, you know, spot on, believable, uh, and and uh, very readable. Mm. So yeah. that's uh, to The gent. you know, she's a member of the Communist Party, um, uh, and obviously uh, is pretty critical of what has been done to the uh, the Evenki and the other ethnicities in uh, Northeast China. But um, there's very little. She she's true to history there, but um, and and she does. Uh, there there are a few scenes where she's making fun of people, including, you know, when the party secretary is, you know, up in the mountains, trying to talk them into coming down, actually trying to talk the old lady, the narrator into coming down because most everybody else already has. Mm. Uh, And you can see that this guy just doesn't get it. You know, he doesn't understand. She doesn't want to live like that. She says, look, you know, when I wake up in the middle of the night, I look up and, out of my shiranju, you know, my teepee, I can see the moon. It's open. So I've been down to these fixed settlements and you put people in boxes and I don't want to live like that, you know? uh, And Mm. so making fun of the, uh, of the cadres and so on. But Mm -hmm. uh, to be more accurate, historically, I don't know exactly what happened in uh, to the Ivenki, but I do know I've read uh, some very good anthropological work and uh, by uh, European anthropologists, one of whom uh, got to know the last, hmm, maybe, no, it's not, I, I don't think he was in Venki, but similar, uh, the last shaman up in one of these Russian communities uh, of a similar people. And in the 50s, the Russians arrived, uh, the Soviets arrived, and they said uh, several things. Number one, this shamanism, this is superstition, okay? Um, mm-hmm. We Marxists, we don't believe in that rubbish. Uh, so I want you to, uh, and, and, and actually, you know, this man talks about, it. he says he was forced to, to, to bring out his paraphernalia, uh his spirit drum uh, and these marvelous things they get dressed up in when they do their trance dances i mean and throw it into the fire and swear up and down that he would never again try to serve as his community's uh you know medium with the gods with the spirits the spirit world uh and of course uh you know the Russians were very uh under Stalin you know were very tough about that and nothing of that kind appears In last quarter of the moon, what happens in last quarter of the moon is the last, the second, and the last um, shaman shamaness has you know she's lost several children and so on, and I think one of her children, uh, certainly one of the the children in the clan, starts doing all sorts of strange things, and he uh, you know goes out in the the forest for for hours. And he I think runs over coals and his his feet don't burn, and they're thinking, "Oh boy, you know we've got a shaman in our you know in the future on our hands, and uh, they dissuade him and tell him that he is not permitted to take up this uh this profession so in that sense, it's possible that uh the uh the cadres from the CCP also arrived. Uh, among the uh, Ivenki, and didn't just try and get them to move down to a fixed settlement. Perhaps, I don't know, uh, they were forced to give up their shamanistic practices and and rights. Certainly, they were in Russia. uh, And at that that time, so much of uh, what happened in the 40s and the 50s, uh, with, in terms of the policies that were practiced uh, in governing the ethnicities, it, it was just, China at that point was just imitating the Soviets. So mm-hmm. did she avoid that sort of thing, that sort of conflict because she's a, a member of the Communist Party? Uh, I don't know.
0: Um, when you mentioned the uh, China uh, Writers Association, I was thinking, I have mentioned that on the show before, and it's it's an interesting thing that, that they have over there. And one thing it does, uh, well, it ensures that these kind of privileges uh it, it creates a privileged literary position which is attached to the government so back when um back when people like wang Shua, people who could be somewhat dissident or badly behaved writers were writing it was they could be published but they would be kept out of the um the inner circle of the writers associations but at the same time a lot of really great writers inside china who um you know are are able to write critically about periods in Chinese history are quite high up in these associations. Like there's um, who who's previously been banned, and now he's, he's uh, been rehabilitated or what have you. And he's, he's not continued outside the establishment. He's inside the establishment in the writer's Well, yes,
1: I, I, would, I wouldn't put it that way. Right. Um, I, mean, I don't know about Jia Pingwa, but mm. the, the point is that in the 50s, it was just like the, the uh, it was based on the Soviet model. Right, and so, right. you know, your work unit, if you were a writer, it was the China Writers Association, right? right. And so they were paying your your salary. And, and uh, you know, if you weren't good or whatever, you couldn't get published, you still got paid. But, mm. you know, wouldn't, they wouldn't allot you an apartment or whatever. But those days are over, right? Yeah. So,
0: I may be more thinking of like the uh, 80s and 90s but yeah it's good that you mentioned that they're also a product of uh, like copying the Soviet system um, and yeah I I remember thinking that when late, late, later in the novel where a lot of the stuff we've been talking about does happen um, later in the novel but yeah when the um, when the Chinese show up it's basic when the Chinese show up as a group rather than as individuals it's um it's as the the party or the government coming to um with with like their nation building project let's say and i was thinking as i was reading it's like you could come in as a maybe a naive reader or a reader who doesn't know too much about china at the time or someone who has their kind of head in the sand when it comes to um uh, communist states but if you wanted to in the book if you wanted to read these officials as just misguided people pursuing a pretty benign socialist cause of providing housing healthcare, care um, infrastructure for people who previously never had them like the evenki you could read them as people who are doing absolute well they, maybe they're doing the wrong thing but they have at least, in as far as their intentions and their goals are concerned, there is nothing sinister. They're just trying to improve people's lives. But I think it's yeah, you're you're right to point out that um, that's quite likely not not the whole story, and that might be because of the limits of what you can get published in in China in in Chinese,
1: or, or possibly even you know uh, how Xi sees things. I don't know. Mm-hmm.
0: Right, exactly. But,
1: but there is one thing I I think is is really quite striking uh about the arrival of, of any of these uh you know Han Chinese who were you know from the state uh which is just extremely ironical. I want to bring it up because mm. um there's a word in uh Ivenki, it's called the Udang uh which is spelled U U R I R E N G. And you can Google that word actually. Um and it means um it's basically, it's the clan that is living a collective lifestyle, uh, and uh, it also refers to their campsite. You know, it's a clan living together. It's the basic self-supporting unit in Evenki culture. It's the village, uh, and it's a collective style of life. And mm-hmm. and to me, the the incredible irony is that the the cadres uh come up thinking uh you know they want to talk the uh into stopping their hunting uh moving down to fixed residence and this and that and because they need to begin living a socialist uh style of life Mm. and the irony there is that they're they're living the ultimate right socialist collective lifestyle so for instance you know, you, you're 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 forty-five, you're a male, you know, your your job in life is to go out and hunt uh moose. But for some reason, you know, you're crippled, or whatever, you can't do it. So you're you're back in the camp, uh, helping the women prepare the food or whatever. Uh but when they bring that, that moose back, you get, you know, a nice slice of it. uh there was no private property among them. So later on you know, the uh, under the collectivization in, in the 50s and so on, um, the, the herd was no longer theirs. It belonged to the state. And eventually, you know, they had to do things like uh, they used to take, they used to cut the antlers off, for instance, and go and trade them for all sorts of things they needed. You know, a horse, um, uh, pans made you know, with iron and so on, which they they couldn't deal with. And now they had to take all of those antlers and sell them to the state in the same way that a a farmer would have to farm land that was not his, uh, you know, particularly during the uh, People's Commune. uh, 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 So that's the 50s until the late 70s. Nothing belonged to you. Everything belonged to the state. Uh, And yet here were these people that were already living, a very collective lifestyle so it's pretty ironic and i thought that trisian did a pretty good idea a pretty good way of, of of making that pretty clear
0: this was something i was thinking about uh another conversation i was having with my girlfriend is different families uh sensibilities about uh personal property or private property or what have you um she's telling me like in in her family basically everything in the house belonged to someone one person unless it was something like i don't know like the the forks in the drawer but um i noticed i felt that they were there was a territoriality about property there that wasn't in my family and it occurred to me yes yeah, some families might be even more sherry sherry than, than than my own and, and and vice versa and yeah the 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 um and this relates to the last quarter of the moon because the tribe kind of operate as one big family and they're a family who, you know, as, as in the uh, ideal version of socialism or communism or what have you. Yeah. They, um, they look out for each other. Um, no one, no one slacks off, but if someone can't, uh, can't contribute as much, they're still cared for and, and and so on. And you've, you've kind of reminded me of um, that, that one academic article I read by Doolan I remember um as i was reading it feeling annoyed that she didn't use it was like a, a critique of uh, the domination of the environment and so and so on uh, but she never uses the word capitalism and she never says socialism or communism either i was tr- looking for like okay when is she going to talk about an economic system but she didn't she just used the word uh domination and yeah that's i now that i kind of i'm looking back on it that's that's a decent kind of way of looking at it because although um the 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 revolutionary uh chinese state is um they're trying to bring about what they think is a better world but it's a it's a it's done by domination it's top down so yeah it's it's a far less um ideal vision of equality than than the tribe like you were saying Uh, i feel like this is something we could probably go on about for a long time but um i'm just gonna ask you one more question about the book proper before we get on to uh translation Maybe we've already got had our answer earlier in our conversation, but which parts of the book really affected you deeply? Because it's that sort of book. I think it's kind of aiming for your to affect you at various points.
1: Yeah, I, I made a note about trying to Okay, mm. uh, I think probably the the doomed romance between the narrator, uh, the narrator's mother, and Nidu, the shaman. Mm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So so quite near the start.
1: Before before her mother gets married, of course, Nido, the shaman, is uh, courting her and uh, uh, ends up losing her in a in a in a duel, if you like, uh, with his brother. Uh, And then once uh, the narrator's uh, father dies, you know, he would like to, uh, Nidu the Shammu would like to continue that, that, that romance. And uh, it's not permitted, uh, right. according to custom. Uh, and so he, you know, he knits her an absolutely beautiful skirt uh, made of feathers of all sorts of birds, which she loves. Uh, but uh, our narrator uh, makes fun of her mother. Uh, so much fun of her when she wears that uh, skirt that, you know, she almost never wears it again, puts it away. And that uh, I just thought it was it was a great story. It goes on for quite a while throughout mm. the, the book. It's just unrequited love and it shows you a very negative side of uh, their society. Right. Uh, that uh, nobody ever says you can't do this, but it's very clear that you cannot, it will not be tolerated. Um, mm-hmm. And you, you feel in the end that her mother dies um, uh, not having been able to, to follow her, her heart. And the, so that uh, that struck me as very well written and, and very moving. Yeah, yeah
0: we, we painted. Of course, the
1: other, the other parts uh, were particularly when uh, the shamanesses' uh, children, uh, are taken away uh, as a price for uh, some good she's done for someone who's sick or uh, needed her help. And that's also quite moving and quite eerie because she has this feeling that something's going to happen.
0: Yeah, and then it does. Um, yeah, I think it was good you pointed out that there are like some limitations uh, to to the to the event. You- Uh, tribe in in the story because we've we've kind of sung their praises for being connected with nature in a way that other modern citizens of modernity aren't we've sung their praises for having a really good uh, egalitarian uh, approach to to property and and welfare and what have you um but yeah there there are some what you might call conservative or repressive aspects to to how they do things and I think it's interesting you pointed out nothing's explicitly not allowed but there are things which are like which should not be done it reminds me um, I remember around that time of my life when I was trying to obsess with labels of belief systems one of the things I read about was anarchism and like the obvious critique not critique the obvious criticism you'd make of someone who wants to get rid of all hierarchies and systems of rules is well how are you going to stop Bad or malicious behavior, and from what I remember, the best answer an anarchist, a really sincere and uh, sincere and um, radical, I suppose, anarchist would tell you is, "Oh well, anyone who anyone who's malicious would be ostracized. So anyone who steals or doesn't uh, contribute when they can, or you know, commits what in a normal society would be a crime, they'll just be shunned." and I guess you can kind of make the argument that's what's happening in them um, or the, the threat that uh, the, the shaman would have there is that, OK, he doesn't break a written law. But if he um, if he purs- pursues the unrequited love too far, it's game over as far as his place in, in the group is, is concerned.
1: And, and of course, he's the leader once once his brother dies. He's pretty much the leader of the of the of the clan, But he, he's just not permitted to do that. Yeah. And, and uh, what's really going on here is that Turzajian is suggesting that even before the Han Chinese arrived and took away their forest and, and eventually their, their way of life, that these people may well have been doomed because of the way they related to one another. Mm. Uh, and there's a, there's a lot of negativism and nastiness among the characters as you go along. And then uh, I have a, a, a Spanish friend who has lived in Yunnan for 30 years or so, more or less of an anthropologist. And he was shocked by how many people end up dying you know, violently uh, or very unpleasantly uh, in the second half of the book. And that is also a part of what she's talking about. Uh, yes, uh ecologically, these people uh were pushed out uh, by the Chinese who wanted their their timber. but they had problems, and uh, their isolation meant that you know they couldn't get uh, they couldn't take care of themselves sometimes, and they were also psychologically bearing down on and shunning uh, other members of their group so you know uh, there's more than one factor there it's not a it's not a simple black and white thing yeah totally like I mean yeah mm,
0: like does does our condition as modern you know people in modernity drive us mad quite possibly but would we want to throw it all away? Probably not. I I quite like living in a house and having internet, even if who knows what the internet does to my brain, probably a lot of not great stuff, but you know, would I get rid of it? Maybe not. So let let's on <laughs> I don't I don't know why I'm ending talking about the book by some sort of throwaway comment about the internet, but that's what I'm doing. Um so let's move on to the next section. That's uh technical questions. So in this case, uh questions about translation because you're the translator of the book. So you should have a thing or two to say, um something you stressed to me when we first got talking were the uh the differences between the original title in Chinese and the English title that the book had uh, in its trans uh, publication in translation um so can you break down each title for us oh it's,
1: it's pretty easy really yeah, yeah I mean basically what happened was that the the chinese is, the the literal translation uh is uh, the right bank of the argon, mm-hmm. you know, the right side of this river, as opposed to left. Right. So the right bank of the Argon, thats really what is called the uh, Arunachal uh, mm. uh, So uh, basically, what happened was that uh, you know I I translated an ex- excerpt, Great Tan of, uh, based in Taiwan, uh, very good agent. You know, he he got he sold the book very quickly. Uh, Simon & Schuster bought it, Um, excuse me, uh, uh, Harville Secker bought it, Uh, it was actually published later on by Simon & Schuster, Uh, and and, uh, they waited a while to hire me to translate it. In the meantime, uh, the Italians put out the book, you know, they found somebody to translate it, came out, uh, and the uh, Italian name a title for the book, it was um, La Ultima Cuarto de Luna, okay? You know, the the last quarter of the moon, Mm -hmm. right? And, uh, you know, in a Romance language, uh, it rhymes, right?
0: Mm, Right.
1: But in English, so so then what happened was they were uh, trying to figure out how to translate it, and they came up with it, you know, they translated the Italian name the last quarter of the moon. Mm. Uh, and I said to them, you know, that doesn't say anything about China. It doesn't say anything about the event gig. It doesn't say anything about the their environment, the Argon or uh, the Amur or the Heilongjiang or whatever. Uh, and they were just sold on it. They liked the, the sound. And so that's mm-hmm. what they ran with. And I, I found it kind of funny. But looking back on it, I don't really feel that the publisher uh, quite understood what this book was about. And, uh, you know, they insisted on publishing it in hardcover, which there was just really no need. I mean, it's the the readership is people interested in uh, ethnicities, anthropology, sociology, a good uh, tale about something about China that you really wouldn't have thought of. But there's nothing in the, in the title that gives you any idea that says anything to do with China or, or the borderlands of China. So I thought that mm-hmm. was a big mistake. It has been translated now into, as I said, Dutch, Japanese, whatever. And it's about half and half. Some of those titles uh, do, are the translation of the words right bank of the Argon, mm-hmm. while the other ones go with uh, last quarter of the moon. So that's the story there.
0: Hmm. Would you be mad at me if I said I think "Last Quarter of the Moon", moon is a really beautiful book title?
1: You... <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> I think it's great. You know, who hmm. am I? I'm just a translator. Yeah, right. Great. Yeah.
0: I think I think I see what your point because the Argonne River, you have a, a geographic place name there in in the title, and it relates to the Evenki. So there's a a good uh, what's the word? There's a good rationale there for that one. I think if the the problem with the rationale for me is i wouldn't really i mean i suppose i might know now where the argon is i was involved i was helped i helped out in publishing a book which had a great big map uh concerning the borders of china so i labeled that river a few times but if i hadn't done that even me someone who lived in china would be like argon where where could that be and I, I would guess most english language readers they, they know it's a river but that's because it only because it says right bank they might you know they for they might have no idea where that's Pointing to, but um I, I can appreciate how how vexing this can be because the work I do with the publisher, whenever we decide that we don't want to go with the literal, because yeah, we we did tra- a lot of translated Chinese books, and whenever we decide we don't want to go with the um literal translation of the Chinese name, on one one part of me thinks, oh, fantastic, we can um, we can have deep discussions and be creative, and the other part of me thinks, oh no, not not this but, again.
1: But it, there's one thing that's undeniable. I mean, I mean I've, I've been the the the, the editor of many magazines and, and a few books and so on. And, and it, it's undeniable that by choosing uh, you know last quarter of the moon, that you have not provided the reader with anything, any clue that this has to do with China. Mm. It, and actually what I said to Truth the at the time was, well, that's good in that they're trying to market this as fiction. Right. Uh, and not as, you know, Chinese anthropological, whatever. Yeah.
0: yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that's a tricky thing, even, even on this podcast. There, I mean, the, the the clues in the name is the Chinese Fiction Podcast. Um, but I think there's a, a, a temptation to analyze everything for like a national lens uh, or a geographic lens or political lens, anything that can make it about China. Uh, but often a lot of the really um meaningful stuff you can get out of a conversation about these books avoids that kind of um, thing that you're magnetically drawn to and treating the book as fiction and I think one reason why that's so fruitful is for your a lot of your average readers that's that's it what's in their mind when they pick up the book because right not everyone yeah hmm yeah, mm, yeah. Um, Okay, here's the next technical question. Uh, This one's not actually about translation. It's about research. Um, So you mentioned that you talked a bit with Chid Sijian. Did you have to do a lot of your own research? And did you have to consult with her much?
1: Right, okay. Well, first of all, consult with her? No. Uh, In in two areas. One is that uh, her Chinese was extremely clear. uh, Right. Quite simple. Uh, And so... Uh, you know, when I translated uh, say Shanghai Baby or uh, some of the stuff I did, say on um uh you know, Chinese painting and so on, uh technical words and all. I, I need to get back to the author. For this, no. Okay. So I did ask her uh, one thing, and I was quite disappointed about what she said. There are a hundred there are about 125 words in the novel which are Ivenki words. Mm. So I was just talking to her about it and, and wondering if uh, she could recommend someone to me, some in Ivenki, so that I could uh, get some insight into these words, particularly how they're pronounced in Ivenki. And she said, well, why don't you just use Pinyin, you know, Romanized Chinese? Mm. Boo. I thought, oh, no, no, I think you, you, you didn't hear me. <laughs> mm. In other words, these people don't speak Chinese. Right. That's not their world. So uh, when I got the Italian version, which came out before I did much of the translation, I was shocked to find that the Italian version did use most of the time um, uh, just simply uh, uh, Romanized forms, uh, transliterations from the Chinese. Right. And this really bothered me because this is a people and a culture under threat and a language. And there's only 30,000 of them in, in, in China. And probably today, um, uh, the, the children say under 20 are probably speaking more Chinese now than they are uh, uh, ivanki So it seemed to me, it was part of my mission uh, to make sure that those 125 words uh, were adequately conveyed. So I spent a lot of time and some of my own money uh, trying to locate people who are, either were Ivenki or who knew Evenki people so that I could uh, find out how each of these words was pronounced in Ivenki. Then I would have the option of transliterating from the Evenki sound rather than the Chinese sound. So uh, that was quite an adventure. I probably spent, mm-hmm. I don't know, a fifth of my entire translation time tracking these people down. And it was very interesting. I found probably the authority, um, uh, a, a Dr. Tao Ke, uh, that's his Chinese name. He is Ivenki and he, he didn't speak, uh, Iven- he didn't speak Chinese until I think he was a, a teenager. So, you know, he grew up in a, in a village right. uh, and he got a, a PhD in Japanese linguistics. Brilliant fellow. Now, uh, uh, very fully employed at the Chinese um, Academy of What, what is it? Uh, ah, the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, extremely, extremely prestigious. You know, and these are where the anthropologists and and uh, archaeologists and sociologists uh, of China, you know, work. So, uh, I I found him, which was not easy. Uh, And I said, I've got these 125 words, uh, and you can break them down into three categories. One is place names. uh, One is names of the characters in the book. And then there are these words that uh, are used to describe various aspects of Yvanki culture. And I said, you know, I'd love to have you transliterate them for me. Uh, and uh, long and short, it was he didn't really have the time to do that. And so, in the mm. end, he did about one third of them. Many, most of the words had to do with things like the word for village, or the word for a mouth harp, uh, or the word for various uh, fruits or animals. That was very, very useful, but. Because uh, he wasn't able to do all of them, so I had to go out and, and find other people, and I found some very interesting people. I found a, a an American of Tajik, of Tajikistan, of Tajik right. uh, background, who had by himself, he was a, a dealer in junk bonds in, in Hong Kong. <laughs> Goodness. <Unbelievable background. laughs> uh, who was running a uh, a blog, he launched a blog, Called something like, Why Living in Hong Kong but Not Learning Cantonese? (laughs) I don't know how I hit upon this guy, but he learned uh, quite a bit of Mongolian and Russian uh, on his own.
0: Interesting. In China.
1: 26. Brilliant guy. Uh, And he, so the reason I wanted to deal with him was that the best dictionaries, um, bilingual or trilingual, glossaries or dictionaries uh, are not, have not been uh, compiled by the Chinese. They've been compiled by the Japanese and by the Russians. Mm. So, uh, of the words that uh, Dr. Tao could could not help me with, or it just didn't seem quite right, uh, he was able to look at the Russian dictionary and say, no, 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 no. it's this word, it comes from that, this is how you pronounce it. So that was brilliant. Uh, I found a fellow, a Uyghur, uh, living in Shanghai, who happened to have been to uh, the homeland of the Evenki uh, up in Siberia and so on, and so he knew some of the place names, at, at least in Russian. Uh, and he also had Uyghur friends, so that was that was useful. Um, for the place names, I came across a brilliant book. Uh, which was put together, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago by a committee of Ivenki, working, uh, who know Chinese uh, scholars. It had something like 8,000 place names. Imagine, you know, you're talking about Manchuria, which is the, you know, the three uh, northeasternmost provinces of China and and a fairly small area of of, of Russia up to uh, Lake Baikal and uh, Siberia. 8,000 place names. Mm. Now, so this is a people who, you know, obviously there were a lot more than before and a very rich whatever. So uh, and it was written in Chinese, but it gave you the uh, uh, transliteration of each place name. So I used a lot of those. Uh, and uh, then the third group uh, was uh, the names of the characters. And that's interesting because Some of the characters have names that are obviously Russian, right? Changed, you know, uh, not fully Russian, or not the full Russian name, uh, but maybe the shorter name that that a Russian might use in, uh, you know, among his uh, his friends and among his relatives. And so, to find out how those names, which of those names were Russian, which of them were really Ivenki. And how to pronounce all of them in Ivenky, Uh I found uh, Gutau's uh, sister-in-law, and she went and showed this list uh, of the names in Chinese uh, to Ivenki's. They said, oh, well, this one is Russian, and this one is Ivenki, and this is how you pronounce it. <laughs> so I spent a lot of time on that, and money, uh, and uh, didn't regret it at all. Loved it, because it just seemed to me very important to do it. Uh, And I refused to simply use, uh, you know, one other thing about this that I did, which some people would find uh, maybe uh, extreme uh, or even wrong, uh, was that I decided that some of the city names that in the novel of towns, really, and and small villages and so on, uh, that were given in Chinese, that that was not on. Because I don't think uh, before the early 50s that very many of the Evenki uh, spoke Chinese very well. Uh, of course, well enough to trade and to deal occasionally with whatever Chinese they met. But they were pretty isolated and they were doing a lot more with Russians and, and Mongolians than they were with the Chinese. So uh, when I found that there were Evenki names for those places, uh, instead of using the Chinese name, I used Ivenki. Uh, and that seemed to be, you know, sort of true to the event key, if not exactly true to Tritzen's version. <laughs> so there you are.
0: Right. But, uh, you
1: know, the one I figured it didn't make a big difference because for the most part, they weren't big cities. So even the Chinese mm. wouldn't know where they are, you know? Right. Okay.
0: Yeah. Fascinating. Really, really, uh, really fascinating. I got the feeling you might have done something like that, but now to know know the the details and the story and uh, the the people that you spoke to, fascinating.
1: So let me answer something else. So you said, you know, what kind of research did I do? I Mm, did a mm. lot of research. Uh, I did not do something as some people said, did you go there? No, I did not,
0: Yeah,
1: too bad. But I watched Guthau's videos and I got a, a version that may not even be commercially available now. Uh, And so I saw all the people speaking and singing and drinking together and everything. It gave me a very strong feeling about them. And one of the things I want to focus, uh, I want to emphasize, is that um, almost all the pictures on Gutau's northern hunting culture, uh, and of course in his videos and everything, uh, are of this one clan. So this is the clan let me spell it out. It's A-O-G-U-A-O-G-U-L-A-Y-A. I'm sorry, L-U-Y-A. Um, these are the people that were visited by the Jen. So once you've seen some of the videos and you've seen the pictures, you've definitely seen some of the people that she was thinking about as models for mm-hmm. the book, including the narrator. Right and Trudeau's uh, young was asked if this woman, who's now must be over a hundred, and as far as I know, is still living in the mountains, um, if she had interviewed her and based the narrative on her, and she said absolutely not. But certainly, some of the characters in 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 the book were more or less based on some of these people, uh, their their character traits, and so on. So that's really neat. Okay, so the last kind of research idea which you know just went on and on and on i must have printed out three or 400 sheets of paper from online uh you know russians uh anthropologists whatever all about uh the the uh history and culture of uh, the Evenki. and you know i read all that some it was in chinese uh, a lot of it was in english uh and so on and All in all, I consulted, I think, three dictionaries or glossaries. One was uh, Mongolian, Ivanki, and Chinese. And then through this Tajik fellow, uh, you know, Russian. And then uh, the Japanese also, uh, I I did get a hold of one of their glossaries. uh, All these languages, uh, you know, I I don't know Mongolian, but I can read out Russian and, and I know Japanese well enough to to take a look at this stuff. And really it was quite well done. And the essays on their uh, culture, it was just endless and, and, and brilliant. A lot of hmm. it uh, was written by people say, uh, who, who have done uh, research on the Sami, who are uh, an Arctic people, uh, similar lifestyle to the Iveki uh, in Sweden. Uh, so, yeah, I did a tremendous amount of that kind of stuff. Mm. And it seemed to me, uh, from what I read in the book, that Tritha Jen, she definitely did her homework. You know, she yeah. was able to find these 125 words of Ivenki, and they all were Ibenke. Uh And, uh, you know, the way she portrayed the people and their lifestyle, um, it was pretty impressive.
0: Fantastic. So one... Well, I thought this was some kind of deep question when I was writing it. I now realize this is probably dwarfed by everything you've just described. But um, one of the first times I thought about this sort of um, issue for translation uh, in relation to the Minzu, the ethnic groups of China. So there's an anecdote you can find in a few different places online from Howard Goldblatt whose translations have popped up a few times on the show. So he was the guy that translated Wolf Totem, and he has said publicly at talks and stuff, uh, he had a few uh, disagreements with uh, Jiang Rong, the author. They had a good relationship, but sometimes a bit rocky because of their disagreements. And there was a thing on the very first page of his translation that set Jiang Rong off, and that's the character Han. So Han is in Han Chinese. And in the translation of Wolf Totem, uh, well, in in Wolf Totem, uh, the how can I say this? The 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 people who are coming into Inner Mongolia from um, the interior of China, they don't get referred to as like a Dongguoren or something. They refer to as Han, I guess Hanren, so Han people or Han Chinese people. And in Goldblatt's translation, he basically just simplified that to Chinese. So the Mo, the Mong hm, everyone in the story pretty much. No, everyone in the story is a Chinese citizen, but the Mongolian ethnicity people are referred to as Mongols and the Han people are referred to as Chinese. So, if you're not familiar with China, actually my girlfriend read the book and she's, you know, she's she knows a bit about China now because of me, but she didn't twig until quite far through that the story was happening in inner mongolia a chinese province and, and not mongolia so um yeah this is all a preamble to ask you about how you did the translation because you used the word han in your translation and i'm guessing that's a direct translation from uh, chu uh, zijian's original chinese so what i want to ask is what what difference do you see in your rationale there and goldblatt's
1: yeah as i recall you know i mean I translated this book a few years ago mm. but i don't I, I don't believe she ever referred to them as 中国人, you know right. as chinese uh so you know maybe uh just very simply uh, uh, i remember uh they used quite a bit, Hanren, you know just han person you know mm. a han, um which actually is uh, when I was in Yunnan, you know, we don't refer to Chinese as Chinese. We call it the language of the Han. Mm. And of course, you know, many people in uh, uh, in Yunnan they're not Han Chinese. So uh, in the north, the north northeast, I assume, is the same thing. Right? So I'm not sure that uh, I I meant anything terribly deep by it, but yeah, yeah. I would say that I didn't feel that the the perceived the Han as Chinese. Or members of a Chinese nation because they were living in the mountains. Very few of them le- ever left the mountains. You know, being near the the river and and, and their herds and everything, they weren't traveling around. Uh, you know, outside of the Greater Kiangan uh, mountains. So these people that they met up with, uh, there were some Anda, which is you know Russian for friend. Uh, and, uh, you know, they spoke Russian with them or some Russian or or the Russians spoke with them or or Mongolian. So the Ham were just another of the peoples that occasionally uh, appeared in their lives. And, and there weren't all that many of them until the late 40s and then the 50s. So I'm not sure that they the the only uh, reference to, uh, you know, the Chinese Empire was their Ideas about the Manchu and the Evenki, right. although not in the book, the Evenki actually uh, were uh, recruited by the Man- Manchus uh, into a banner to fight for uh, the Qing dynasty. But the, Manch- the Manchus were seen as their cousins, not as Chinese. So uh, it just never occurred to me to call them Chinese because Chinese would mean they were from a country called China and uh, China didn't exist for these people. You know, there were villages where you traded this or that and big city, you know, larger towns where you went to, you know, buy a horse or, uh, you know, buy, buy something to, to store during the winter. So you didn't starve to death or to get liquor, but Mm. uh, there was no China. So why would these people be Chinese?
0: Yeah. Makes sense.
1: That's, (laughs) <laughs> but the you know the other thing is that uh beginning in 2009 uh and up right up until now you know i've been running a, i've been hosting a blog and for a long time the name of the blog was or the slug line was <laughs> writing by the chinese writing in chinese by and about non-han peoples mm-hmm. so the whole idea of launching the uh the blog, was to focus on uh, the lives and uh, consciousness of people who are not Han. So, of course, uh, those people often refer to the Chinese as Han uh, and don't necessarily have a strong sense of being a nation, uh, a member of a nation called China.
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I bring this one up quite a lot on the show, and I always stress it's it's, it's an analogy and all analogies are ropey and this is a very ropey analogy. But I think of like the UK where um, the people who are most specific about what the word English means are the non-English. So if you ask an English person, what's the difference between English and Brit- Eng- England and Britain, they'll be able to give you like a technical answer. But there might be like, a first they'll be like, huh? But you know, th- those two things are synonyms. Whereas like, uh, if you ask someone in Scotland, like, is there a difference between England and yeah, Britain? are
1: non synonyms yeah they're not
0: synonyms yeah 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 um like of course like that is the technically accurate definition because england is one territory in in the country but it just happens to be you know it's in a dominant enough position that culturally like what is the difference between english and british culture i don't know that um maybe there is not very much difference at all maybe it's a stupid thing to even think about but at least like in the definition of each word they are different but that's most apparent to the non-English rather than the English but yeah um, I'll I'll try not to make it any more about my own identity (laughs) because I do that enough on the show already um, and it's irrelevant really Um, yeah so there's there's all our translation related questions let's get on to the the silly fun ones now Um, so I always do a well I try to always do and I'm I'm getting better at it now having a word of the day for each episode and obviously it's, it's always been a Chinese word of the day but if if you think it would be fun could you suggest an Evenki word of the day or if, if 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 you like we could do both we could do a chinese word of the day and an evenki word of the day
1: no yeah i have no chinese word at all this is not okay. about chinese. um i think i would probably think of a uh, a word i brought up which is uh, udirang udirang you know which is both the, the clan that's living together and, and, and the camp where they live and, and which is really their their home and the center of uh, their lives. Uh, the Udirang is very, very important to them and unthinkable that one would leave it. And so, for instance, when we're talking about you know Nidu, uh, the, uh, the shaman, he wouldn't be able to survive psychologically if he were put outside of the Udirang. Mm-hmm. And from an anthropological point of view, it's a clan. Yeah, so that's the basic the basic unit, rather than the uh, what in the West we refer to the you know the the family as mom and dad and the kids, and that's not it's not it's not the same idea.
0: Mm. yeah so in these word of the days and i i always put them in the show notes and i always put the english well usually it goes i put the chinese characters the pinyin and the english uh translation um and for this one correct me if i'm wrong but in your english translation you don't translate Udirung. you just have it as a like a loan word i suppose from from venki right. and it's in i Ita- is it is it i forgot is it italicized or not italicized
1: well all of the, the words which were uh which I thought of as being uh evocative of uh or descriptive of of uh Iveki culture I, I italicized all of them
0: right right that's right so if I'm going to put a translation of Uderang, well, should i should I put clan or do you think it's kind of an untranslatable concept
1: um well, it's it's both. It, it is the you know the the temporary living space uh, of a clan. So you know encampment right. village, but it, it's also it, it, it's not just an encampment because it's the clan's encampment. Ah,
0: right, okay. So it can describe the kind of social group and also the place the social group is present right and i phrased that in really <laughs> clunky uh scientific language but yeah it, so i'll maybe in my show notes i'll put something like uh um, clan slash camping right camping did you say what was the term you used
1: okay well uh i'll say it again but you know i looked yeah. up today uh and i saw uh the technical definition of this word uh, mm. is a clan living together uh the basic self-supporting unit of Evenki culture. But there we go, right? But to me, reading the the book, the clan uh, and the place are, are inseparable.
0: Got it. Okay.
1: So they wouldn't. Uh, they wouldn't. Uh, you know, if, if if one of them met up, you know, in Beijing with the other, it's a. You know, they couldn't just say we're. You know, we're. If they said we're in the same dong, you know, it's it's like it's like. Karas, in uh, <laughs> I forget that author's name for me reading the book, it seemed very clear that it's where the, the clan lived together, both the place and their relationship. And that's the, right. that's the neat thing about uh, you know, using uh, the Ivenki rather than explaining it. So there's a little background, to right? This. The Kite Runner which I wrote about, the translation of which I wrote about in 2009, it was one of the first things I ever put up on my blog, and it got thousands and thousands of hits, even, even up till now. It uh, also had about 150 uh, Afghan words in it, you know, Dari, uh, Pushtu, whatever. Mm. Uh, and I thought that both uh, Truth the and the uh, author of uh, The Cartrunner handled these words very well. And what they did was, generally speaking, they just threw them in, in the middle, almost as if you were a native speaker. Mm-hmm. And never said, it was never uh, uh, in brackets, oh, this means the clown. You know, it, right. was, yeah. it was woven in the story, and they use it several times, and it becomes pretty clear after a while what it means. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's a great thing to do for your readers, because it, makes, it stretches the brain a little. Uh, and it reminds you, okay, yeah, I'm reading this in, you know, probably my mother tongue is Chinese or it's English, but these people, we don't speak the same language, and yet now I understand.
0: I have had an experience of reading a translated Chinese book or, or two, and the translator has, or perhaps the editor, but probably the translator has opted to, give us a loan word from Chinese, which they put in italics, but then exploit in brackets, give us a, a definition of the word. And it makes me want to bang my head against the wall. Cause it feels like I'm reading a textbook and not a, not a, not a piece of fiction. Although that said when it's in footnote at the bottom, I, for some reason I, that that's fine with me, but yeah, it, it's, it, it you know, if it's a glossary can...
1: or something at the end. Yeah, of the book, yeah. That's great. And I wanted to have one and, and, and the, and the uh, publisher wouldn't do it, but, hmm. I thought that uh, the way she did it was good. And I felt in a sense that I made it even better by making sure that the pronunciation was as close to Ivanki as possible. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I think it was it it was it was a it gave me some confidence in the book as I was reading it. So I think that that was a good choice. Um, I worry we're getting quite serious again. So here is another silly question. Uh, if last quarter of the moon was a drink and it could be hot or cold, hard or soft, uh, what drink do you think it would be?
1: Mm, I think it, it really should be a, a sour yogurt drink made from uh reindeer milk.
0: And last in the kind of miscellaneous question slot here, it's your self promo slot. You mentioned a blog. How, what is the name of that blog? How can the listeners find it?
1: Okay. Uh, I have three ways you can find me. First of all, you can just Google me. Yeah. Mm. Uh, So if you Google Bruce Humes, you'll definitely find my blog. I mean, it'll come up on the first page of uh, Google, but my blog is, you know, triple W Bruce hyphen Humes.com. And the problem there is that uh, I've just moved it to WordPress. And so it's really a mess. Uh, so uh, I would recommend to readers that they either click on uh, at the very top. There's something called translation services, uh, and if you if you go there, you'll see all the translations I've done. I have a lot of links, right? Or on the home page, there there's something called blog categories, and so you you could click on last uh, last quarter of the moon. Or you could even just go to the search window and type in uh, you know last quarter of the moon and and all sorts of things about last quarter of the moon would pop up they mm. wouldn't today, but they will later. The reason they wouldn't today is that all of the uh, URLs have changed but i'll I'll change them and then thirdly uh you can find the things about me uh, on amazon i mean, i I've, I've translated several books or Kobo.com. dot com mm.
0: yeah, I was just going to say um I some of my research for um for this episode was done right on your blog. There's some really uh, interesting further reading uh about uh last quarter of the moon and other coverage of it and right. stuff. So yeah, it's a, and and all sorts of things if anyone if anyone's feeling very interested in what uh Bruce has done regarding like the other ethnicities within China and its borders is just an absolute uh, smorgasbord of, of stuff there. So it's, yeah, great blog. Um, is there anything else you'd like to talk about, like recent, uh, recent publications or things you're working on now?
1: The last book I did and the one that I'm doing now, they're both about uh, the Silk Road. Uh, one of them is uh, Silk Road uh, uh, culture. So I'm just I'm finishing off a book now, which is called uh, Silk Road... Civilizations, colon, uh, 15 talks. So this is a... He's actually... Uh, he was born in China, born in Shenyang, which is in, uh, in Manchuria before. Uh, grew up in Taiwan. He's Manchu. Uh, right. And he... Kind of unbelievably, studied uh, something in biomedicine, you know, definitely in in the sciences and worked in it for like 50 years, but uh, became very interested in in the Silk Road uh, and has pretty much followed it all the way from China to various places in in Europe and Turkey uh, and Hmm. has uh, talked about um, how Chinese culture uh, basically, you know, moved along the Silk Road uh, in, in Eurasia. And I guess the other thing I could tell you, I've been reading uh, two books. One of them is called Five Women Who Loved Love, <laughs> which is a fairly erotic uh, collection of short stories by Japan's uh, saikaku Ihara. And something a little closer to what we've been talking about, just got it the other day on my Kindle. It's called Land of Strangers. Mm. And it's by... A fellow who specializes in Chagatai language. His name is Eric Schlüssel. Just came out a few days ago. Uh, right. So Chagatai uh, is a now extinct Turkic language, but it was once spoken very widely in Central Asia, basically as a result of the uh, the uh, Mongol invasion. And what's interesting about it is that he studied with uh, Mark Elliot. Mark Elliot is a sinologist known perhaps most for being uh, a proponent of what's called new Qing history. Mm. And the new Qing history people are interesting because basically it, it, they took the time to learn, most of them at any rate, um, took the time to learn uh, to read Manchu. Mm. So they've gone back and come up with all sorts of, you know, different uh, views of Qing history, because if you only read the Chinese, you know, you'll, you'll get certain knowledge and certain angles, if you like. Uh, but if you read, particularly in the earlier time, uh, when, when they were still, when, the, when the, uh, the rulers really were still fluent in, in uh, Manchu, say someone like Kangxi, you know, Kangxi was fluent in both Chinese and, and uh, uh, Manchu, and he wrote a lot of stuff in Manchu. So mm. the new Qing historians basically have come up with ideas that clash with a lot of the the Han centric view of the Chinese Empire. So Eric Schlussel has gone and, and learned a language that also very few Chinese scholars know. That's Chagatai, which is uh, more or less the uh, the prototype for say Uyghur. Yeah. Right. So that that means that uh, you know, he's been able to over the years, uh, you know, read maybe hundreds, perhaps thousands of documents that were written in uh, a Central Asian language uh, about Xinjiang, about the stands and, and Land of Strangers. What he's done is he's taken this period, uh, I think it's about 1870 to the early 20th century, when uh, China really was trying to uh, colonize. Uh, Xinjiang. Uh, for a long time, basically the Manchus just let the the Uyghurs and the, and the other locals, Kazakhs, the Mongols, uh, the Hui, you know, get on get on with running their own uh, show in Xinjiang. And there were Han Chinese there, but they were definitely a minority. Uh, and then along came this uh, army uh, from Hunan, and they moved into. Turpan, which is a major city in Xinjiang, and he goes into, apparently, into detail about the daily lives of people in Xinjiang, which is something that you know, very few historians tend to deal with. It's, it's normally politics, the big events, the, the battles. And he can right. do this because he knows Chagatai and Chinese. So I'm, you know, I have high expectations for this book. <laughs> it should be fun.
0: It's fascinating. Yeah, I just I typed Chagatai and and I can see there is a Wikipedia wormhole just waiting for me to jump in at some point. Uh, really interesting. Um, yeah. So you've, you you that that was going to be your last question. What you're reading now. Um, so that means I'm all out of questions. Right. So yeah, I guess I, it's time for me to say thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been it's been enlightening.
1: Well, I I enjoyed it. I I didn't know we were going to end up talking about animism. I think that's <laughs>
0: yeah um i i don't know if it showed up at your end or if the listeners or cat will catch it but when i was going on my great big long rant there about um one's relationship with the universe and the cats and the geese and stuff maybe i'm just having a weird week but that my i was getting a bit emotional there but yeah that just speaks to the power of the book i suppose and the magic of uh of of literature although it sounds very corny when i say it like that but yeah again um thanks It, it was a fun chat i agree Alright we've reached the end of the episode. I had a great time chatting with Bruce. I hope that you guys had a great time listening in on that chat by the magic of the internet. Um, Certainly a lot of fun for me. So before the mp3 file hits its very last second I'm going to give you the plugs. So uh, don't forget what I told you at the start of the show. Uh, If you want to support the show. Follow the support link in the show notes. Um, If you can't see the show notes, if you're using iTunes and it's the shortened version, um, then go to the Trichofik homepage, trchfic.podbean.com. And the support link is at the top right there. It's a hammer and a mallet. That's that other hammer-like object whose name I couldn't recall. So there's a little icon of a hammer and a mallet. And next to that, text that says, help support Trichofik. And the text is in the Josephine Sands font, which is my favorite font, by the way. So remember, there's the Patreon. There is Triffic Deluxe. There is PayPal, and there's Buy Me a Coffee. I think um, you guys don't want to hear all that again. So yeah, that's that's how you can support me. Another thing that is on the podcast homepage now, which is pretty cool, are uh, tags. I've added the little tags widget that Podbean has plugin. Sorry, not a widget. So if you scroll down along the left-hand side of the page, you'll see a load of tags uh, saying things like all crime episodes, all sci-fi episodes, all wuxia episodes, all solo, ep- sorry, all solo episodes, uh, novellas, set in Shanghai, Taiwanese writers. And yeah, so those are a fun way of kind of browsing episodes by topic. And if you're a listener who's like only interested in the sci-fi episodes, which is pretty reasonable um, because it is a very popular niche and I know that it does describe some of you guys there's a tag that will um, isolate all those for you. So yeah, very handy. If you ask me, uh, it was a very clever guy who made those tags. I think he deserves lots of money and praise. So yeah, thanks to him. Uh, feedback: If if you heard something that you did not like or did not agree with, or something that um, you did like and want to say I like that a lot, um, then please, please, please do tell me more. I'd love to hear like what your favorite episodes were. Um, if me or my guest got something wrong and you want to correct it, I would love to hear all of that. That would be expensive extremely useful and, and you know it's in its engagement engagement makes me happy so yeah if, if you want to engage with the show ie talk to me uh, you can use social media twitter instagram and discord are kind of the go-to places so uh, the show's twitter is just my own one that is at angus likes words the show's instagram is is at Truchovic, T R C H F I C. And we have a Discord where you can, um, get, you know, well, share your thoughts or meet other listeners of the show, talk to them, blah, blah, blah. Discord's been pretty quiet lately, um, I'll be honest about that. But yeah, um, that's a great place to share your thoughts because you won't just be sharing them with me, you'll be sharing them with other listeners. So a lot of potential in the Discord, even if um, it's kind of crickets and tumbleweed there just now. Those are, those are all our, our, our generic little bullet points that I have to hit for the, the plugs. You probably know what's coming now. Uh, it's the best thing you can do for the show, and that's spread the word. So if you know someone who might be interested, tell them. Even give them the link. That would be even better. Um, and, of course, tell your teachers. Tell your reindeer. Tell your anda, your local Russian trader, that you sell all the reindeer... Um, not hooves. What are the things that grow from reindeer heads? Antlers. Antlers. <laughs> My girlfriend's laughing at me. Um, yeah, sell your reindeer. Ant- the guy that you sell the reindeer antlers to. Tell him about the show. Um, and your local shaman or shamaness, obviously. Because, you know, they have a lot of influence on the natural world. So if we can get all the um, the sparrows and the beavers and the wolves listening to the podcast, that'll really boost my numbers. that would be excellent. So please do that. And uh, until the next episode, taijian.